Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hello, once again, it's Mike. Nothing but truth. We'll measure and find it. And it's still October the 31st. Reformation Day. For some reason... Got knocked off. Oh, about fifty-one minutes into the program, and about twenty-some minutes into the uh, part one of uh, the Jesuits and the Counter Reformation by Walter Beat. Once again, I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist or a Sabbatarian, and nor do I endorse it. But I do endorse. Well, a lot of Walter Reed's work. He did the masterful job in explaining the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation and what has happened to the Reformation, who the Jesuits are, and how all of humanity is suffering from it. So we're going to try to get back into it. And I apologize for those who, um, who tried to... Uh, I guess there was a couple people that showed up, and sorry about that. Seems to be the case. So, it's a good job at disappointing people quite a bit, huh? <laughs> it's not really that funny, but I guess it is what it is. Um, yes, so we've missed out. We've, I think we're at uh, <clears throat> just, uh, qualifying the difference between how the Jesuits' philosophy is and the true teachings of Jesus Christ about what uh, it really means to be a Christian and what it means to be a Catholic or a follower. And then the day, unknowingly, Lucifer and Satan. So, anyways, we'll try to make this happen again. Um, I think I'm tempted after I get this part 22 done, I actually do on the uh, Catholic. Um, Islam connection. But um, we'll see. I don't know if I have enough time to do all that. Probably have to get back to the reading. So well, that's something definitely I'd recommend people listening to. So we're going to start about 20. I'll say 20. If, I'm, if I end up missing a minute or two, I didn't know when it, it dropped on me. But um, if I miss a couple of minutes, you can always go back and watch the slide itself, the slideshow presentation of Walter Vee's. Um, all right, just listen. So, here we go. Sequence, not a means to salvation. So if you are a Christian, you will have good works. Because you are impelled by the love of Christ to do good works. But you do not do the good works to get brownie points in order to get a higher status or even to go to heaven. So there's a subtle difference here between the two. Catholicism has them both embodied. Now that's the history. 
And it is a bloody history. When you go through all the mega wars, the 30-year wars, the massacres of Europe, all the inquisitional activities, even amongst themselves they had so many arguments when the Inquisition was passed from one order to the other and taken away from the Jesuits. Who the poor Dominicans. They were slaughtered. And even after that, they will use it to their advantage and say, look, even Catholic orders suffered, so it couldn't have been us. Are the Jesuits still relevant? Do they still have a role to play today? Well, in this year, we had this interesting election of a new general for the first time in history. A Jesuit general retired before he was forced to retire by his death. And the new Jesuit general is Father Adolfo Nicolas from 2008. And here are the Jesuit electors. These are the inner core of the Jesuit order. And it's interesting to read this extract of a letter that Pope Benedict sent to the Jesuits just prior to this new election of this general. So here is the present Pope writing to them. And he writes, I too gladly wish to take this opportunity of a general congregation to bring such a contribution to light which might be of encouragement for you and a stimulus to implement ever better the ideal of the society. Jesuits go and work to get society to the level where we want it. In full fidelity with the magisterium of the church, such as described in the following formula, which is well familiar to you, to serve as a soldier of God beneath the banner of cross and to serve the Lord alone and the church his spouse under the Roman pontiff, the vicar of Christ on earth. Jesuits, that's your job. And then he quotes an apostolic letter from 1515. He says, One treats here of a peculiar fidelity confirmed also by not a few amongst you in vow, in vow of immediate obedience to the successor of Peter, Perinde a cadaver. Good grief. This is Pope Benedict writing. Quoting, and, I, and he says to them, Your obedience to me must be as the obedience of a corpse. Perendee a cadaver, like a corpse. You will have no mind of your own. Whatever is said, you will do. Blind obedience. The church has even more need today of this fidelity of yours, which constitutes a distinctive sign of your order. In this era which warns of the urgency of transmitting in an integral manner to our contemporaries, distracted by many discordant voices, Jesuits, I need you now more than ever, and I need your blind obedience. Is that what he's saying? That's exactly what he's saying before the vote took place. And here he is with the inner call, the electors of the Jesuit order, sitting in the front. He's the man in white, and they the men black. Fascinating. How does he feel about their institutions of learning? This is the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, the most prestigious Catholic Jesuit university in the world. 
And what did Pope Benedict have to say about this institution? He says, once again, the Pope entrusts this university to you. A work so important for the universal church and for so many particular churches, it has always been a priority amongst the apostolic priorities of the Society of Jesus. Here is your entering wedge. This work is for the church and for all the others. Well, let's have a look at how we shall proceed and how they have managed to turn Protestantism into something which does not even resemble Protestantism. Here is Adolfo Nicolas, the new Jesuit general, shaking hands with Peter Hans Kolvenbach, the previous general. And it says, Peter, uh, Father Adolfo Nicolas of Spain, the newly elected superior general of the Society of Jesus, celebrates his first mass at the head of the Jesuits at the Church of Jesus, January 20, 2008. So this general, the previous general, Peter Hans, Peter Hans Kolbenbach, is the first general in history to be permitted to resign. And here he has been sworn in, made available by the Jesuit Order Press Office. Spanish Reverend Adolfo Nicolas swears in as the superior general of the Jesuit Roman Catholic Order during their 35th general congregation in Rome's Holy Spirit and Sassia Church, January 19, 2008. The general of the Jesuits is always known as the Black Pope because he wears black. And the White Pope is the Pope who is the the external picture of the papacy. This is the yin-yang, the black and the white squares, the knowledge of good and evil. So the new general meets with the pontiff, Rome, 28th, January 2008. And this is Catholic World News. Jesuit officials released a statement after the meeting saying that the conversation between Father Nicholas and the Pope had been warm and friendly. And they reaffirm his personal respect for the vicarious Christ as well as the esteem of the whole society of Jesus. So this is all being made public. So first you have this letter reminding them of their affiliation and now you have the confirmation. According to the statement from the Jesuit superior, Pope Benedict said that he was pleased to know that the general congregation of the order which continues its meeting in Rome this week will reflect on the message that the pontiff sent to the participants as the general congregation began. So here they are together to reaffirm in the spirit of St. Ignatius its own total adhesion to Catholic doctrine, in particular on those neurologic points concerning the mind, which today are strongly attacked by secular culture. So this order, is it dead, yes or no? Definitely not dead. This is the largest order in the Roman Catholic Church. This is the most powerful order in the Roman Catholic Church. It is a military order. It has a general at its head. And all other orders 
have subscribed to it. Even the great orders of the Malta. Bob Ratzinger to the Jesuits, 21 February 2008. Now I want you to listen carefully what this Pope wrote. And here's a Latin text for those who would like to dispute this. Come straight off their own uh, webpage, this Latin text. Here it is translated for you. For this I have invited you today to also reflect in order to find again a sense of fuller obedience to the successor of Peter. So that it does not only involve the cases of sending you on missions to far lands, but also in the most genuine, ignited spirit of feeling with the church and in the church. To love and to serve the vicar of Christ on earth. With that effective and effective devotion that must make of you the precious and irreplaceable collaborators in the service of the universal church. That's powerful. So the duty is to love and to serve. What does the Bible say? What is our duty? To love and to serve the Lord God with all our heart and with all our soul, with all our mind. Here we have a totally different order. Here we have a human being taking the place of Christ, being served as though he were Christ. Now the whole Reformation separated on these issues from the Roman Catholic Church. And finally, after much bloodshed, the Council of Trent came together, and that was championed by the Jesuits. This is the Council of Trent conclave. And uh, unfortunately, Martin Luther was already dead when the Council of Trent took place. And my question is this. The Vatican II Council, which we read about, which started in 1965, and which suddenly opened the doors to all Christian communities to be acceptable again, because before that date, it was said that there is no salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church. You can only be saved as a Roman Catholic. That's why I became an atheist. It's true, because my mother was a Protestant. She was Lutheran. And she died when I was 12 years old. And she took four years in dying. And in those four years, in my religious instruction, I was told repeatedly that my mother, not being Catholic, had no hope of salvation and would go to hell. And I hated God. And I rejected Him. But after 1965, suddenly she was okay. All she had to do was acknowledge the supremacy of the papacy and even the separated brethren could be incorporated. So my question is, did the Vatican II Council change the Roman Catholic position established at the Council of Trent, that there is no salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church? Well, let's ask the Roman Catholic Church. That's the best way to do it. My quotes, as you will see, come direct from the Vatican, directly. This is the address of His Holiness Benedict XVI to the participants in the plenary session of the Congregation for Doctrine and Faith. In the old days, that was called the Inquisition, and Ratzinger used to be the head thereof. He, he says, Your eminences, venerable brothers in the Episcopate, and in the priest group, dear and faithful collaborators, it gives me great joy. He starts all his addresses like that. It gives me great joy. 
To meet you on the occasion of your plenary assembly, I can thus express to you my sentiments of deep gratitude and cordial appreciation for the work that your dicastery carries out at the service of the Ministry of Unity. So, dear Inquisition, you have a Ministry of Unity to get them all back under the wing of the Mother, entrusted in a special way to the Roman Pontiff. It is a ministry expressed primarily in the terms of unity of faith resting on the sacred deposit whose principal custodian and defender is the successor of Peter. He is the principal custodian of unity. Last year in particular, the Congregation for Doctrine and Faith published two important documents which offered doctrinal clarification on essential aspects of the church's teaching on evangelization. Let's see where we go. The first document is entitled Responses to Some Questions Regarding Certain Aspects of the Doctrine of the Church. In its formulation and language, it reproposes the teaching of the Second Vatican Council in full continuity with the doctrine of the Catholic tradition. Thus, it confirms that the one and only Church of Christ which we confess in the creed has its subsistence and permanence and stability in the Catholic Church and that therefore the unity, indivisibility and indestructibility of Christ's Church is in no way annulled by the separation and division of Christians. Has anything changed since the Council of Trent? No. It's exactly the same. It's just couched in fancy terminology. This comes from, where does it come from? Vatican.va. That's their own webpage. I delight to read what this present Pope has to say. And if we would read it, we would not be so confused. It's mind-boggling what he says, but nobody even bothers to read what he says. The Second Vatican Council assertion that the true Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church, dogmatic constitution, lumen gentium, does not exclusively concern the relationship with the churches and Christian ecclesiastical communities, but also extended to the definition of relations with the religions and cultures of the world. And the declaration, Digitalis Humanae, on religious liberty, the Second Vatican Council affirms that this one true religion continues to exist in the Catholic and Apostolic Church to which the Lord Jesus entrusted the task of spreading it amongst all men. Nothing has changed. The only thing that has changed is Protestants believe that it has changed. Far from preventing authentic ecumenical commitment, this difference will encourage a realistic and fully informed discussion of the issues that still separate the Christian denominations. So the Papacy is not hiding it. They're saying, we're the boss, we're the only ones, and salvation is only in us, so when you are joined to us, you better realize it, because you don't accept me as boss, you're up, you're dead, you're lost. They're pretty plain on this issue. Well, no problem. So let's go towards full Christian unity. There is no doubt about the issue. And when the ecumenical councils say, but, you know, Rome has changed. 
Read what they're saying. They haven't changed. Here's another one. Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith responds to some questions regarding certain aspects of the doctrine of the church. Here's the official mouthpiece of which Ratzinger was the head. Levada is now the head. Bishop of uh, San Francisco. First question. Did the Second Vatican Council change the Catholic doctrine on the church? Let's ask them. Straight. They're doing it themselves here. It comes from their own web page. Response. The Second Vatican Council neither changed nor intended to change this doctrine. Rather, it developed, deepened, and more fully explained it. Clever. This was exactly what John the 23rd said at the beginning of the council. Paul the 6th affirmed it in his commented on the act promulgating the Constitution Lumen Gentium. There is no better comment to make than to say that this promulgation really changes nothing of the traditional doctrine. Isn't that plain? Absolutely crystal clear. Thank you. We know where it stands. What Christ willed, we also will. What was, still is. What the church has taught down through the centuries, we also teach. We haven't changed. I hear so much, but they changed. They changed. Here they said they haven't changed. In simple terms, that which was assumed is now explicit. That which was uncertain is now clarified. That which was meditated upon, discussed, and sometimes argued over is now put together in one clear formulation. This is how it is. Accept it or else. Now, how did they get this doctrine into all the Protestant churches? And how did they get their Protestant churches to change from what they believe to what they practice now? Protestantism used to say, here is the Antichrist, and therefore we will separate. Now they have another Antichrist who hasn't even come, probably will come when they're not even there, so why should they bother about it? Or he's already dead. And that's just total chaos. And what have they got in the, in the place thereof? Well, the Jesuits, entrusted with the spreading of this new dogma, of course it would be the Jesuits, the most important one was Karl Rahner, 1904 to 1984, and Vatican II. Now, we must study their doctrines. And who was his special co-worker? None other than the present Pope. They were both architects of Vatican II. Karana is undoubtedly the most important Roman Catholic theologian in the 20th century. His seminal position amongst his contemporaries results to some extent from his ability to put theology and philosophy into dialogue. This is very dangerous. Because once we start turning truth into philosophy... We can go anywhere. We can go anywhere. And philosophy is the thing that trips up the intellectuals. Wonderful. Kaurana originated a new religious category. Anonymous Christianity. Isn't that clever? Saying it embraces Buddhists, various other non-Christians, and even atheists who are conscientious, upright, and caring. They're all right. They're Christians. Some kind of faith in God is basically there, whether they know it or not, says Rana. They are part of the Christianity that does not call itself Christianity. Pagans who have received grace, but who are not aware of it. That's beautiful. Everybody. 
is incorporated, everybody is embraced, all you have to do is say Papa and you'll be okay. Do you recognize these two gentlemen in this picture? Karana and Paparazzi. We shouldn't call him Paparazzi, we, should, we shouldn't really do that. Two progressivist shirt and tie priests at the Vatican II, Father Joseph Ratzinger, was a co-worker with Father Karl Rana at the council. Here the two of them are together. Please know what Rana said. Rana's motto was effectively, our Lord must conform to the world, not it to him. Hmm. His influence was enormous. He satisfied a modern world, a modern churchman, whose ears were itching for doctrinal compromises under the precept of enlightenment. Here was a new philosophy. I thought I'd throw our Redeemer Lutheran Church webpage in here, which sort of defines where we're standing. I'm not going to read the whole thing, just which doctrines are necessary for unity, Dr. Richard Bucher, both in the 16th century and ours, it has been assumed that agreement in every church teaching is not necessary for unity. Separate Christians, separated Christians, need only agree on the essentials or necessary or fundamental doctrines. We just have to have a few points of contact. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I believe in Jesus. Is he the only way to salvation? That's not relevant. We at least believe in Jesus. Malcolm, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, he was. Oh, wonderful, he was a good prophet. And so we have points of contact. Well, how far do you go until you have absolutely nothing left? Right. Now, what is the aim of Protestantism? And what is the aim of the Jesuit order? The aim of Protestantism is to spread the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ, to spread the good news. The Messiah has come. Come, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Not Jesuitism. I cannot too much impress, says Nikolai Nehisi of the Jesuits, upon the minds of my readers that the Jesuits, by their very calling, by the very essence of their institution, are bound to seek by every means, right or wrong, the destruction of Protestantism. This is the condition of their existence, the duty they must fulfill or cease to be Jesuits. That's why they were called into existence. Accordingly, we find them in this evil dilemma. Either the Jesuits fulfill the duty of their calling or not. In the first instance, they must be considered as the biggest enemies of the Protestant faith, and in the second, as bad and unworthy priests, and in both cases, to therefore to be equally regarded with aversion and distrust. Straightforward talk. Now let's have a look how the world has changed since Vatican II. What have they done with this new theology of embracing everyone? The Second Vatican Council and the Charismatic Renewal. Did you know that the Charismatic Renewal really started taking off after the Second Vatican Council? Here is Pope John, the 23rd, who called that council. On the 25th of January, 1959, only two months after his election as Pope, John the 23rd surprised the world by announcing the council to give the church the possibility 
to contribute more efficaciously to the solution of the problems of the modern age. The joyful echo brought about by its announcement, as well as the lively interest on the part of non-Catholics and even non-Christians, wow, here we have a total ecumenism, proved in the most eloquent manner that the historical importance of the event has not escaped anyone. Vatican II and the charismatic movement, the cardinal appointed to oversee this issue and who served on most of the committees was Cardinal Simmons. Cardinal Joseph Simmons, the prize recipient, well, there's an interesting connection. We'll have to look at the previous one. He was also a Mason. He was initiated on June 15, 1967. He was chosen by Pope John the 23rd to be one of the chief architects of Vatican II. He sat on all four major commissions. He stated, since I've had this charismatic experience, my allegiance to the Holy Father as the vicar of Christ in the world has been heightened and strengthened my appreciation for Mary as the co-redemptress and mediatoress of my salvation has been assured and my appreciation of the Mass as the sacrifice of Christ has now been heightened. All of those rejects. And yet this charismatic experience led him into embracing these doctrinal errors even in a greater fashion. This is what Vatican II has to say about the charism. It is not only through the sacraments and church ministries that the Holy Spirit sanctifies and leads the people of God. He's made that statement in the first place. So if you partake in a sacrament you get sanctified so an action sanctifies there's no salvation by these works according to the Bible he distributes special graces amongst the faithful of every rank and the manifestation of the spirit one for profit these charismatic, charismatic gifts whether they be the most outstanding or the more simple and widely diffused, are to be received with thanksgiving and consolation. For they are exceedingly suitable and useful for the needs of the church. Isn't that fascinating? So this is what Second Vatican Council had to say. Let's embrace this because this is going to help our church. But Paul VI, speaking at the International Conference in 1975, he says 1975 marks the year of the renewal coming of age in the Catholic Church. And he told them, nothing is more necessary to this more and more secularized world than the witness of the spiritual renewal. That we see the Holy Spirit evoking in the most diverse regions and media. How could the spiritual renewal not be a chance for the church and for the world? And how in this case could one not take all the means to ensure that it remains so. Who's behind the charismatic renewal of, do you read these? And the Pope himself spoke in tongues. 1975, Pope Paul VI is giving his address, and Christianity Today reports, bishops, archbishops, cardinals, struggling to keep their hats in place, sang and danced in ecstasy, embracing one another, raising their arms to heaven, and Pope Paul VI's address was punctuated with ecstatics. He spoke in tongues, and here is this 
Roberto, one doesn't always know how perfect these quotes are, but uh, this is historically at least accurate. He says, Catherine Kuhlman was one of Rome's greatest undercover agents, assigned to penetrate the Pentecostal and Protestants through the charismatic movement. She was a master of hypnosis and had tremendous psychic power. As a reward for her outstanding work, she was granted a private audience with the Pope. As a result of her work, most now teach unity, but seldom preach separation and holiness, which Rome dreaded. And that's a fact. Here is a picture of Catherine Kuhlman as she spoke to people, much like the televangelists heal people today. And here is a a picture of 1907 to 1976, 20th century American faith healer. She believed in miracles, deliverance by the power of the Holy Spirit, and was part of the Pentecostal arm of the Protestant Christianity. Here is Protestantism receiving this infusion. She was known for her healing crusades. In fact, Time magazines one called her a veritable one-woman shrine of Lourdes. She you want to be healed, go to Catherine Kuhlman. She was an honorary doctorate by Oral Roberts University. Well, I don't want to go there. You can look at my previous DVDs to see what all that is about. And it's fascinating that in 1973, Benny Hinn attended one of the healing crusades. And this was the catalyst for his ministry. It is thanks to Kuhlman that we have slain in the spirit experiences in the world today that she made popular in evangelical circles. Homer Duncan, the ecumenical movement, gives this description of the 1975 Full Gospel Convention. Now notice here, what can say about the papacy and how, this is Protestantism speaking, supposedly. At the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship World Convention held in Anaheim, California, this was 1975, this is the same year that the Pope spoke in ecstatics. Various speakers from different denominations used such expressions as charismatic ecumenism, the Lord's ecumenism, charismatic Eucharist. The emphasis on reconciliation with all churches was a major theme, and charismatic Catholics were prominent on the program. Catherine Kuhlman said, quote, I want you to know that Pope Paul VI would have fit in very well with this great worldwide convention. He would have understood everything that was happening. He would have understood this is part of God's great plan. I believe the charismatic movement has been duped and used as a mega drive for unity. After all, if the outpouring of the Spirit is the same, then it must all be good. Roman Catholic priest John Battaglietti spoke at the same one. He spoke about Holy Spirit baptism. He said, during the week we have charismatic mass, just a gorgeous experience of worshiping the Lord in the midst of the Holy Eucharist. He continued, but you know the Lord is doing a whole new thing. He's pouring out his spirit on all flesh, all denominations, on everyone. And the Lord's ecumenism. 
Fascinating. All roads lead to Rome. And this is what they use. The Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland, and I want you to note what this man has to say. Here is the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland's clerk to the Synod. And he wrote, when these things were happening, and this was in 1975, that's not so long ago, this is what he had to say on behalf of his Protestant church. He was the clerk of the Synod. He said, the ecumenical movement which you praise, and he wrote this to the Times, and they published it, the ecumenical movement which you praise is the greatest disaster to affect the Christian church this century. It has reduced the professing churches of this country to a collection of bloodless, spineless, and boneless organizations which can hardly raise a whimper on the side of Christ and his truths. Small wonder that the evil progresses as it does and spiritual darkness becomes more intense as the years go by. You appear to regard a body of professing Christians of sober conduct and deep spirituality of mind as fanatical and bigoted. See, get stirred. Believe in the Bible, you're a bigot, you're a fanatic. But if you believe in the experience, you're a Christian. If this be so, then the eminent men of God, such as John Knox in Scotland, John Calvin, Martin Luther on the continent, Archbishop Cranmer in England, were bigots and their contests with the error of popery. We are glad to be in such company, he said. I'm afraid those voices are gone. We don't find voices like that anymore. No, the hype gets bigger and bigger. Pope John Paul II and the charismatic renewal, what they are saying just boggles the mind. Here he's meeting with some half a million representatives of various churches in 1998, and he boldly proclaimed, Oh, docilely to the gifts of the Spirit, accept gratefully and obediently the charisms which the Spirit never ceases to bestow on us. Whatever comes, take it. What does the Bible say? Doesn't we test the spirits? Is this thing from God, or is this thing not from God? No, the Pope says, whatever comes, just take it. This is what we need. And how many are there in the Catholic Church? If you don't believe the Catholic Church is behind them, look at their charismatic priests. Good grief. Well, these are their priests. Charismatic priests from different movements met at the Vatican in 1990. It comes from inside the Vatican. There they are. This is the drive. The bigger, the better. Catholic charismatic movement, both John Paul II addressed to the Pontifical Council for the Laity, 1990. We have experienced the grace of a new Pentecost. There are many signs of hope which have flourished for the mission of the church, among which are the discovery and the appraisal of charism, the renewed zeal for evangelization, and the advancement of lay people. This is a movement that's walk amongst the people, work amongst the people. In 1998, he said, this is by John Paul speaking. Come, Holy Spirit, come and renew the seven gifts. Come, Spirit of life, Spirit of communion and love. This church and the world needs you. Come, Holy Spirit, and make every more fruitful. 
the charisms you have bestowed on us. Give new strength and missionary zeal to these sons and daughters of yours who have gathered here. Open their hearts, renew their Christian commitment to the world, make them courageous messengers of the gospel, witnesses to the risen Jesus Christ, the Savior of man. Strengthen their love and their fidelity to the church. Sounds nice. Then he stated boldly, the movements are the hope of the church. Gardner Ratzinger said exactly the same thing. He said it is Pentecostal hour. Now what's basically wrong with this? The Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ would go to heaven and that the disciples were to wait for the outpouring of the Spirit which would come from him. Whatever you ask in whose name? My name you shall receive. For our Heavenly Father, and then he tells the story of will he give you a whatever in the place of fish and bread? And he says, our Heavenly Father will give you the gift of the what? The Spirit. If we ask in the name of Jesus, God will bestow the gift of the Spirit to minister unto others in spreading the gospel. That was the aim. Here, we have a direct access to the Holy Spirit. And this is not biblical. Meeting with the ecclesiastical movements, Pope John Paul II said, with the Second Vatican Council, the Comforter recently gave the church which according to the fathers is the place where the spirit flourishes, a renewed Pentecost instilling a new and unforeseen dynamism. Whenever the spirit intervenes, he leaves people astonished. He brings about events of amazing newness. And so he goes on and on and on. We need the guidance, the charisma. It is not only through the sacraments and the ministrations of the church, but through this outpouring. And the present Pope adds his voice before answering questions from an assembly. Under bishops, he says, I have had the joy and the grace to see young Christians touched by the power of the Holy Spirit. At a time of exhaustion, when there was talk of a winter of the church, the Holy Spirit was creating a new spring. The challenge today is not to allow the faith to withdraw into closed groups, but to have it enlighten everyone and speak to everyone. How do they get this right? How did I manage to open the doors for the Spirit? And here comes a clue. Rome, May the 7th, 2006. This is a Catholic source. More than 10,000 members of communities of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal will observe the vigil of Pentecost with Benedict XVI. And this is what they said. The unknown God. The Holy Spirit considered until a few years ago as the unknown God. He's the one who with his grace tirelessly changes the lives of thousands of people in all corners of the world, who with renewed joy through the experience of baptism in the Spirit begin a new life precisely in the Holy Spirit, they said. So here we have a move and a way from Jesus Christ and his centrality, from whom are things, to a direct worship of the Holy Spirit. 
and we sing interesting songs and we invoke the Holy Spirit and we talk to him and we pray to him and we say come and do this for me and if this is not following the biblical avenue the biblical avenue is no one comes to the Father except by Christ so the centrality of Christ has been shifted. he is the one we wish to honor talking about the Holy Spirit he is the one we wish to honor and glorify publicly Responding to the appeal that both John Paul II as well as Benedict made, the CCR and the whole church to spread the culture of Pentecost in the life of the church. And in each of the faithful, the director added, this celebration which will include moments of prayer, now I want you to listen carefully, because it gets sneaky. Moments of prayer, listening, Witness and invocation of the Spirit will end with a celebration of prayer. A music concert, a dance which will be presented as prayer by artists of different countries. What have we got? Well, we have a mode of action in the place of faith. Fascinating. Where's all this come from? Father Romero said, pontifical household preacher and Father so-and-so, one of the initiators of the charismatic experience, will speak on grace and the power of the Holy Spirit during the celebration. Fascinating. So here's a movement which has changed the face of Christianity, which has Christianity in a totally new direction. And it's highly experiential. Now the Jesuits prepared the way in this world by first working away and chipping away at the moral absolutes of Christianity. And one of the ways they did it was through the hippie movement. So here you have the hippie movement of the city where everything went, drugs came into this world, free love, all of those nice things. The Jesuit people, the hippie movement, was led by the Jesuits, such as Maxorley. When you saw those little cars where the drugs were being handed out, the Jesuits were away. Maxorley from Georgetown University, a Jesuit university, this led to the anti-establishment Jesus with the long hair, the let your hair down philosophy, the love gospel, the liberation gospel, the prosperity gospel, the coffee house Jesus, the rock and roll Jesus, the existential Jesus who meets the needs of all cultures and creeds. So here we go. Let's get with it. And you thought the hippie movement is dead. It's not dead. Today, the hippie movement is incorporated into organizations and these sprang out of it, like the Green Peace Movement. Isn't that fascinating? And you have all of these the Earth Movement and the Action Coalition and the American Civil Liberties Union and the Green Peace International and the Global Recycling Network and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Socialist Party and mega organizations have come out of that movement. And here was Maxorley. He used to stand on the street corners. He was arrested. He was the forefront leader. Here he says, should we then Life, or should we, you know, death, hate, whatever. Here is Jesuit priest, professor at the University of Georgetown University. He was a Marxist priest, 
And who were his students? Bill Clinton was his student. Fascinating, these Georgetown professors who advocated that Clinton go for a Rhodes Scholarship. And what else was he? He was the mentor of the whole Kennedy family. So here he was, an activist for all of these things. Yes, this is the voice. This is Georgetown University's own webpage talking about McSorley, and it says that he was, uh, he had Bill Clinton in his class, and that he was the mentor and friend and confidant of Emily. He was also associated with Martin Luther King. And please note what he said. He says about Martin Luther King, I saw him as a great Christ figure. So I followed him and marched with him. King explained the meaning of the gospel to me. He taught us that Jesus was serious about nonviolent love, racial justice, peacemaking. King showed us how to live the gospel as well. Isn't that interesting? So all of these activist movements, the Jesuits were behind them. And then the music industry, which has its simple beginnings with groups like the Beatles and all of those. And here you have the Beatles and their songs about Lucy in the sky with diamonds. You remember that? And what does that stand for? I'm sure you all know. It stands for LSD and the drug world. And all of these movements, the Jesuits were behind it. Nietzsche's nihilism. Nihilism is the notion that ethical norms nationally unjustifiable and a consequent mood of despair over life's emptiness is the result. Who creates the emptiness? Who brings the drugs and says there's no purpose to life? If you take away absolute morality, and you take away the well, then there's nothing left. So you have free love, existentialism, here you go, and anything goes, and then you come to the point where you realize, oh, I'm blowing my life away, what's the point in all of this? And then you supply the lack. And here's the danger. Nietzsche defined the concept of the situation which exists when everything is permitted. And this drug world was important. In the Rick Martin interview with Eric John Phelps, Phelps claims that the Beatles were Jesuit-controlled and that the drug world is controlled by Rome via the Mafia, which is Jesuit-controlled. Here are the Beatles with their drug songs. The Beatles were the first rock band to use the Devil's Triad on a record album. And there you can see it. The is using it. And they're even animated, so there's no chance here. Van Housing states is that the Beatles used backtracks and this is what he says, Song Revolution number nine, message, start smoking marijuana, turn me on, dead man, before Jesus. John Lennon in 1962, said to Tony Sheridan at a star club in Hamburg, I know that the Beatles will be successful such as no other group has been, I know it for sure. I sold, for this success, I've sold my soul to Satan. This comes from Jan van Helsing, Geheimgesellschaften und ihre Macht, and it's a quote from him. And then you have this philosophy shift, bringing in a new philosophy, and Heidegger's caring brought into this, this 
nonsensical world. God is dead, therefore life's answer lies within the self. Have you heard that on television these days? Self-esteem, Christian psychology supplies the lack. Heidegger taught that the soul would then concern for others or caring. So now you have a caring Christianity. Heidegger's existential caring, Sorge, to take care of others, is based on Dasein, to be there. So here I am, I'm in a mess. How do I get myself right? How do I get a form of spirituality? I take care of others. This is the religion of self, the religion of Antichrist, God being removed. The church sets the standards and educates coaches, the masses, through Christian psychology, spiritual, neuro-linguistic programming, caring labs, until we have a new spiritual formation. There's a summary of where we are headed. Now let's see how they did it. Step two, create a new morality. Change the direction. We have to get now from this nonsense, this nonsensical existence, into a sensible existence. And who's behind it again? The Jesuits. And you can look them up. Here is Father Gustavo Guterres. And let's learn by this man how we must take a clear stand against social injustice in favor of the revolutionary process. Aha! Uh-huh. So we change our religion from worshiping Jesus, from having a God-centered religion, to having a social religion. Leonardo Boss, the church must be defined in terms of energy, charisma, and progress of the world. So says Richard P. McBride. I always like to know, who are these people? Uh, McBride, who are you? And why do you quote all these Jesuit people? Well, here he is. Let's see. Richard P. McBride is Crowley O'Brien, Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. Hmm, very interesting. Past President of the Catholic Theological Society of America. Interesting. Distinguished achievements. In, in, he received the Murray Award. And he served as past on-air commentator on CBS. He's a big man. Where was he trained? Oh, the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, the Jesuit University. Didn't the Pope say, uh, you gentlemen, you better change the world through these institutions? Let's see what the man has to say. He says, the mission of the church is one of service to the people, especially the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized. Although the structures of authority are necessary for this mission, those structures are always subordinate to it and are to be judged by their capacity to make a mission. Here we go. We've changed our religion. We need soup kitchens. We need this. Is there anything wrong with a soup kitchen? Absolutely not. Is there anything wrong in uplifting someone? Absolutely not. But if that is your religion, then you have changed faith for words. It must be a consequence. And we will see what the difference is. He writes, from the feminists comes the view of the church as an exodus community. So here we have feminism. That's fine. Called to abandon the established social order and its religious agents of sacralization and to witness an alternative social. Let's change the world. He says, we must be change agents, servant model for the church. Gospel by application of the gospel to the struggle for social justice, 
peace, human rights. Excuse me, is this the gospel of Jesus Christ, yes or no? Definitely not. We have a new gospel. The church's activities on behalf of social justice of human rights are not merely preparatory to the realization of the church as the notion of pre-evangelization had it before Vatican II. The church's commitment to and involvement in the struggle for social justice, peace, and human rights is an essential or constitutional part. This is our job. We have to preach social order. No. We have to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. We have to preach salvation by him and him alone. We have to preach repentance. We have to preach justification. We have to preach sanctification. This is not the gospel. This is a new gospel. Matthew says, Take heed that you do your righteousness before men to be seen of them. If you want to do good, do it quietly. If you want to help someone, then do it without boasting. While they claim to be very jealous, glory was the real object which they sought in Christ would make it manifest to them that the lover of self is a transgressor of the law, says this Protestant writer. So let's prepare the mind for this new spirituality. And now we're going to get to the dangerous part. I'm giving you the history, slowly. And when we get to the next lecture, we'll see where we are. It's scary where we are. Do you know about the spiritual exercises of Loyola? How you achieve spirituality? That was 400 years ago. And I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I will show you the essence of it. I've downloaded the whole thing. I could talk a whole lecture just on this issue. This is Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuit order. And remember what Protestants said. He fell back upon himself and he found a means to develop a spirituality not based on faith, but based on self. And he writes, the first thing to do is composition. So you go to a little room and you have composition seeing the place. So if you want to have an experience with Jesus Christ, then in your mind, contemplate the scene, see the place. Here it is to be noted, in a visible contemplation or meditation, as for instance, when one contemplates Christ, the Lord, who is visible, the composition will be to see with the sight of the imagination the corporeal place where the thing is found which I want to contemplate. So this is spirituality. I need a quiet little room. I need to contemplate this issue. I need to see it. And eventually it becomes such a reality I can actually talk to Christ or whoever I have visualized and I can have a one-to-one -one conversation. Here we can contemplate in our meditations, for example, from sins and the composition we will see with the sight of the imagination and consider that my soul is a corruptible body and so I have this experience. Then he says you start everyone with a particular prayer. It's like a mantra. You repeat it over and over and over again. He says, the call of the temporal king to help to contemplate the life of the king eternal. 
So now we have idolatry. He says, when you want to contemplate Jesus, that's too difficult. Let's take an earthly king, a marvelous earthly king who is, who is the epitome of Jesus. Well, who was he referring to? To the Pope. He says, first you start with a composition, you speak with the imagination, and then you put before me a human king chosen by God. Our Lord, whom all Christians, princes, and men reverence and obey. Who's that? So I start imagining the Pope. Second point, the second is to look how this king speaks to all the people, saying it is my will to conquer all the land for unbelievers. Therefore, whoever would like to come with me is to be content to eat as I and to drink and to dress as I. So I have to be poor. Excuse me, I would have to become mega rich I would have to get myself a mobile and drive around in it third point is to consider what the good subjects ought to answer such a king then he talks about penance he says penance must be interior and exterior it's not enough to go to Jesus and say Lord I have sinned forgive me no it's got to be exterior I have to chastise myself I have to punish myself how do I punish myself? One, one way is I could tell my eating. That is to say, when we leave off the superfluous, it's not penance, but temperance. It is penance when we leave off from the suitable, and the more and more, the better. So I start eating only what I absolutely need to stay alive, the breadcrumbs and the this. And when it comes to sleeping, it's not enough to take off the superfluous. No, no, no. I don't need the soft things to sleep on the hard floor. Preferably put nails under you. Now you can see why many of these orders, the nuns look so emaciated and cold and they sleep on hard floors and they're told what they may eat and nothing may taste good because you have to penance yourself. He goes further. He says you must chastise the flesh. That is giving sensible pain, which is given by wearing hair cloth or cords of iron chains next to the flesh, by scourging or wounding oneself. This is his right thing. So you have to beat yourself with whips. You have to wear chains. So that is why Opus Dei and all these groups wear pain anklets. So that when they move, they feel stabbing pain to be reminded of their commitments. This is horrendous. This is the modern Christianity. That's why in the Philippines they enact this and they beat themselves and they crucify themselves. This is spiritual exercises of Loyola. You have to pay for your sins. Faith says, My Lord died for me. My, for my sins for me all I have to do is come in repentance to him and then you progress once you've broken yourself down to this point and you start progressing and then you must praise much the religious orders so your example is all the religious orders around virginity that's marvelous and continence praise vows of religions praise relics of saints 
So go to the relics and start feeling the bones and all of these issues and praise constitutions about fasts and abstinences of Lent, of Ember days. So now we need lots of feast days to fill our lives. Can you see what he's, what he's contemplating here? Now you think this is 400 years old? I have shocking news for you. We must understand the exercises of Loyola if we want to understand the Jesuits. To have the true sentiments which we ought to have in the church militant, the first of all judgment laid aside. This is Loyola speaking, and here is the picture or his statue as a saint in the Vatican. First of all, judgment laid aside. What is Pope Benedict says? You have to be perende a cadaver like a corpse. And we ought to have our mind ready and prompt to obey in all the true spouse of Christ our Lord, which our Holy Mother, the Church Hierarchal. And hold that which I see is black if the hierarchical church so decides it. This is the spiritual exercises of Loyola. Blind obedience is absolutely essential. And this is the famous statement that they had to obey Erendea Kadava. Like a corpse, you must have no mind of your own. Now, is this dead? Or is this alive and well and destroying Protestantism today? That is the question we must ask ourselves. The spiritual exercises in today's world has expounded in national Jesuit news. Let's go to today. The spiritual exercises of Ignatius belong to the church. In, on their own, they involve lay and Jesuit colleagues in a fruitful way. They create spiritual conversation and community which Americans yearn for. They help religious women, offer women's gifts to the church and the world and help the laity find their own gifts confirmed by prayer. They offer an assured way to find God working in all things and a feasible project of living contemplative in action. Ooh, you knew what these terms meant? Just Christians in the marketplace. Inactive Christianity. They write, Ignatius of Loyola created and conducted this apostolate for 15 years before he was ordained. And he says, the history that spiritual exercises are proving an astonishingly effective instrument of lay spirituality, even in the postmodern era today. They are, please note, this is a Jesuit organization writing. They are being used for and by and with lay people in many formats all around the world. And then supply the basis of sophisticated spirituality for the marketplace. Well, they've got something to sell. And it is the road to hell that they have to sell. This is not biblical religion. It is safe to say that going through the one-on-one -on -one directed exercises today than at any time in history. It is safe to say something more. Spiritual exercises are being used and as, as an apostolic instrument by better educated laity. So don't only think that the Jesuits 
are in control. They have trained an army of hundreds, thousands of lay people in their exercises. And how is it going to affect you? Yeah, you can find it on their own web pages. Ignatian retreat and spiritual exercises in our day. Here is an eight-day Ignatian retreat. What more can I say? Eight-day Ignatian retreat for priests, religious deacons, lay ministers by so-and-so. Come and discuss here and study the spiritual exercises and other meditations. This what more can I do? An Ignatian retreat for people somewhere on the way. Helps you explore and pray about what it means to serve. Serve who? Do you want to download the spiritual exercises to see if I'm making it up? Go to the Jesuit Review. This is their own web page. You can go and check it out. And you can download the spiritual exercises. And they quote here, the first instrument of Jesuit Review offers an introduction to the spiritual exercises. You think they did? I'll show you where they are today. Tetlop is another Jesuit, writes. Philosophy continues at the heart of the Jesuit liberal arts curriculum because more than any other discipline, it can provoke the intellectual conversion of the conventional thinker to principled reflection. Right. With that as background, let's go to our time. You've all heard of the Alpha Course? It is started as probably the greatest ministerial tool in the history of Christianity. And we will progress from this humble beginning to where we will see we are today. It is scary, it is mind-boggling. The Alpha Course and Cell Group Philosophy. Now let me first, right off the bat, say, there is nothing wrong with small group gatherings. It is God-given to have small group gatherings. People come together to study the Word of God and to find meaning in the Word of God. Beautiful. The more, the better. But this is not Alpha Course. This is small group gatherings, but on a totally different basis. And having gone through the spiritual exercises, let's see if we can find it. The founder of the, of the course, as it is written today, was Nicky Gumbel. And here he is. Where does it lead us? Let's read what the great Alpha web pages say. This is Alpha USA. What is Alpha? The Alpha course is a 10-week practical introduction to Christian faith. It gives people an opportunity to explore big life questions like, is there any point to life? What happens when I die? Alpha guests learn how Christianity answers these questions. Alpha course is for everyone. It sparks faith in people outside the church. It kindles the faith of new Christians and it fuels the commitment of long-time Christians. This is the greatest thing ever. Alpha guests explore Christianity by participating in 15 sessions that take place in a relaxed, welcoming, engaging Each session explores a particular question. And then they have all the questions. They sound nice and innocuous, no problem. Is there more to life than this? Who is Jesus? Why did he die? Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? How can I be filled with the Spirit? How can I make the most of the rest of my life? Sounds nice. No problem. Nobody should be concerned. The Power of Alpha by Rebecca Barnes, reprinted with permission. 
Since coming to the United States in 1996, the same year the Bishop of London appointed Gumbo Alpha, Alpha has grown exponentially. The number of U.S. churches hosting the courses has increased from 200 the first year to more than 7,500 in 2005, and then they talk about how magnificent it is. And in, in May 2004, former Vineyard USA National Director Todd Hunter joined Alpha as its president, excited about the marriage of spiritual formation and evangelism that Alpha brings. Two terms we will have to come to grips with. He says in his blog, he calls the Alpha Course the most holistic approach to evangelization available in local churches. Now let's see what Nicky Gamble says. He says, between Protestants and Catholics are totally insignificant compared to the things that unite us. We need to unite around the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the absolute essential things at the core of the Christian faith. Who said that before? Vatican II said that. This is a Vatican II philosophy. We need to give people liberty to disagree on the things which are secondary. We make a rule, he writes, Alpha, never to criticize another denomination, another Christian church, or a Christian leader. No criticism allowed. Catholic bishop says, Ambrose says, Alpha is a powerful evangelistic tool. It doesn't contain anything that is contrary to Catholic doctrine. Did he meet the Pope? Yes, there he is with the Pope. It was a great honor to be presented to Pope John Paul, who has done so much to promote evangelization around the world. What unites us is infinitely greater than what divides us. And he has admitted that certain sections were particularly written so as to incorporate Catholicism. So this is an ecumenical tool to unite with Christianity. Now Alpha News, which is their great news magazine, tells us some interesting things. The Holy Spirit, the sense of the leader. So in Alpha, one of the aims is to be led to this spirit experience. It makes the reception of the Holy Spirit and outward manifestations the mark of the faith. The published testimonies come out of Alpha nearly always concentrate on the Holy Spirit experience. So it leads us to this marvelous experiential religion. Albeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, says, he will guide us into all truth, and he shall not speak of himself, but whatever he shall hear, that he shall speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, says Jesus, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. So what is the aim of the Holy Spirit? To glorify Christ, to enable us to spread the gospel, not to have an experience, it's not biblical. Now let me tell you about cell groups. Cell groups like the Alpha Course, cell group, or a spiritual director, just like Ignatius Viola's story. They're designed to bring people to consensus theology, no argument is allowed, celebration liturgy, and to sacrificing of individual norms to group norms and dynamics using peer pressure. Let's have a look. 
I'm taking these quotes from the manual to the Protestant churches. These are mainline Protestant churches, teaching Alpha Course. And I'm going to quote from them. Here we go. A cell group has a host, a leader, a Timothy, and a participant. A cell group caters for pastoral care, individual need, and has a specific structure and duration. It's very controlled. It's not a group of people coming together to discuss the Bible or to talk about prophecy and see what the Bible has to say. It forms the bridge between the people and the church. Every group member is evangelized, consolidated, built up as a disciple, and sent. Duration of a session is one hour, starts with an introduction, praise, prayer, subject, application, formalities. Deviation from the format is not permitted. I'm quoting directly from the handbook to the Protestant churches. Please note. Also, members are not permitted to change cell groups. You will remain in this one. And murmuring and criticism is not permitted. The unity of thought, feelings, and commitment are sought. The disciples in the salvation cannot operate independently of their agenda. Unity is the symbol of maturity. So you will stay in your group. You will have consensus theology. You may not murmur. You may not find fault, seek error, and you will be submissive. We will have consensus theology again. Anything that is shaky, we will discard. You may not talk about it. This is about unity. Models for success. Declare that success is yours. This is nothing else than the power of positive thinking. Persevere, dream, and visualize. Oh, let's see how they work. Obedience and respect for leadership is essential. It's an Ignatian retreat, Perinde Kadava. Even if your leader turns out to be a dog, you will obey him without question, said Loyola. The leader will seek counsel of his or her trained superiors in the church and the trust of his or her disciples. Moreover, the disciples must be encouraged to confide in the leader regarding their problems. Excuse me. What do we have here? This is Roman Catholicism as its best. The leader takes the place of a priest. He becomes the father confessor. He's absolute. You may not question him. And he gets his counsel where he is trained. Trained in specific schools of training. Fascinating. Let's continue. We have a 12 around one model. Please, what am I quoting for? I just want to remind you. I'm not making this up. Where am I quoting this from? From the handbook to the Protestant churches. Jesus took three and a half years to train the twelve, and so cell groups used the twelve around one concept. Jesus did not choose thirteen, but twelve. The teens of twelve we commenced to restore the altar of God in the world. Excuse me. The twelve. 
The model of 12 has always been in God's heart, and the number symbolizes government and authority. So now we have numerism. So it becomes a cult. Because if you don't have this 12, well, then you must try and improve. Always try to get to the 12. You can work without the 12, but that's the, mo- the model and the aim. So the number becomes important. By the way, if you have around the one, then the spiritual guide takes the place of Christ. He becomes an altar Christ. And did Christ send only out 12? Or did he send out 70 or any number? Here's that government of 12 definition. comes from there. I put down the page even so that people can see it. A revolutionary leadership model that consists of the leader who chooses 12 people. Now, please note what is being said here. This is incredible. Who chooses 12 people so that his or her character and authority can be reproduced in them so that the vision of the church can be developed. Ah! So, if you are a self, the highest you can rise is to the level of your spiritual leader. God forbid that we should aim that low. Why not make Christ your model and have infinity to strive for? Sorry, let me rephrase that. To be uplifted to. Now let me show you something else. Here is the web page of the Rosicrucian Order. Probably one of the most occult orders in the world. The Fellowship. Like all the other mystery orders, the order of Rosicrucians is formed on cosmic lines. If we take balls of even size and try to, how many it will take to cover one and hide it from you, we shall find that it will require 12. Then I have to read it all. It says, there were 12 apostles that classed Christ, others examples of this grouping of 12 and 1, the Rosicrucian order therefore also composed of 12 brothers and a 13. Satan wants to be the and Jesus had 12 tribes of Israel and he had 12 apostles and he was the centrality, the old passing over to the new. Satan wants to be like the Most High, but he makes it not called two. We don't need a specific structure in order to worship Christ. The Bible says where, how many come together? Two or three come together in my name. I will be there. I don't have to have an occult number in order to conjure the spirits. This is nonsense. In the section on intercession, we read, intercession is necessary to confirm the team of 12, to satisfy the need of the group of 12, to enjoy to attain sanctification, to build and maintain like-mindedness, to raise up the disciples to the same level of servitude as their mentors. Good grief. Who's left out of this equation here? Jesus Christ is left out. A mentor is described as someone with a priestly commission who is merciful and sympathetic and approved and holy. So now you must look upon him as holy and approved. 
texts quoted include passages from the Gospel of John, etc. Spirituality is based on Jesuit principles and it is virtually every Protestant church in the world. 1 Corinthians 14, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than all of you. They say what we need, that's positive aspects. They lay a lot of claim on healing, prophecy, power, miracles, tongues. This is the manifestation that they seek. What did Martin Luther say about this? The true way to Christianity is this. I like this man. You know that? I like this man. The true way to Christianity is this, that a man do first acknowledge himself by the Lord to be a sinner. There's no mentioning of sin in those writings. This is a totally new gospel that they have. Martin Luther says the first thing is you have to acknowledge you're a sinner. And that it is impossible for him to do any good work. For the law says thou art an evil tree, and therefore all that thou thinkest, speakest, or doest is against God. He quotes Matthew. For whosoever is not of faith, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. When a man is thus taught and instructed by the law, then is he terrified and humbled, then he sees indeed the greatness of his sin, and cannot find himself in himself one spark of the love of God. Therefore he justifies God in his word and confesses that he is guilty of death and eternal damnation. The first part then of Christianity is the preaching of repentance and the knowledge of ourselves. Boom. Of the Alpha Course. What they want when they study the Bible together is isogesis and not exegesis. Exegesis is determining what is the Bible trying to tell me, what is God trying to tell me. Isogesis is what do I think God is saying? There's a big difference. That's why today we have modern translations which are dynamic equivalent translations. That means that some theologian has pre-digested for me what he thinks God is saying. Excuse me, don't I have a mind of my own to find out what God is saying? Ignatius, this is the professor of the University of Bonn talking about the Jesuits. Ignatius understood more than any other leader of men who preceded him that the best way to raise a man to a certain ideal is to become master of his imagination. We imbue into him spiritual forces which he would find very difficult to eliminate later. Forces more lasting than all the best principles and doctrines. These forces can come up again to the surface sometimes after years of not even mentioning them. It's a form of hypnosis and becomes so imperative that the will finds itself unable to oppose and has to follow their irresistible impulse. This is hypnosis. This is not Christianity. Ignatius was influenced by what is called the golden legend. It was especially attracted by the extraordinary feats of penance performed by the Egyptian monks who beat themselves and chastised themselves until eventually they had these experiences. The basis of spiritual exercises is pictorial imagining in which one brings every sense under the impact of the imagination. An exercise called composition, seeing the place. 
The imagination is closed in liberal form, the object is fixed, and the imagination becomes reality. Today we call this exercise visualization. It's practiced at school level. The little children in schools are taught it. It's part of the curriculum. The Jesuits have it all under control. It's practiced from primary to tertiary education. It's a disaster. Moral judgment becomes suspended, and you live in this euphoria. Now, Jesuit retreat lasts for done by a retreat master or a guide or a coach. What do they call these people when we are educated by them in Protestant churches? We call them guides. We call them coaches. We call them retreat masters. They don't even hide it. Only the director who has grasped the mind and the heart of the spirituality, which is distinguished service to Christ, can fulfill his task of adapting the exercises to the precise needs of the individual or group to whom he is speaking. Fascinating. An experienced retreat martyr who knows the exercises well will make numerous little adjustments in his approaches to the meditation to fit the education, temperament, role, age bracket, and interests of the audience. What's that all the same? Listen to what this ex-priest, new age priest has to say, Will Barron. He said, this ritual was very deceptive. The average Christian would probably find nothing seriously objectionable about the phrases used, yet this meditation proceeds designed to lead people into accepting the voice of masquerading demons as being the voice of the Holy Spirit. Some of these people, we've read it in the newspapers, suddenly heard voices and these voices started telling them, those are the enemies of Christ, don't kill them. And then they go and do these things. You will get what you are trying to experience. Now listen what the Protestant magazine Christianity Today has to say. This was Billy Graham's magazine. It says spiritual direction is one of the classical disciplines that people from a wide variety of Protestant, Catholic and Orthodox backgrounds are examining and recommending a new Spiritual direction as practiced today, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, owes its greatest debt to the founder of the Society of Jesus. They know it. They know it and they introduce it. There is no doubt that this is a counter-reformation led by the Jesuit order. The article continues is that Loyola's retreats focused on sin and its consequences in the lives of participants, the life of Christ of the devil, the passion, the resurrection, all of these nice themes. Now, what does the Bible say about spiritual directors? Micah 7 says, Trust ye not in a friend, put not confidence in a guide, keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. Not even the one you love is allowed to dictate to you in your spirituality. No one. This is the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ and him alone. Martin Luther says, the spirit is nowhere more present and alive than in his own sacred writings. We must let the scriptures have the chief place and be its own truest, simplest, and clearest. Scripture alone to rule and not to be interpreted according to my spirit or that of any other man 
but we understood in its own light, per sum and according to its own spirit. I don't need a spiritual guide to tell me what to believe. I need the word of God. That's what he said. But not today. We need spiritual directors. We need coaches. We need to experience exercises. It says, let all be educated to search the scriptures, to be constantly looking unto Jesus and not to human agents to be their guide. The word of God is to be the man of our counsel. The word is infinite, obeyed. It will guide us into safe and sure paths. But the word diluted with human devices and imaginings is not a safe guide. Exactly the same as Martin Luther said. God wants to do something for each one of us. Individual work. Please note. A personal work. Students do not pretend Depend on your teachers to form your character. For Christ's sake, make your characters individually. Take hold of God and do not think that you have to be always with your teacher in order to be solid workers. We are to represent God to the world to show what his teeth have done for us right on this ground. We want to see the moving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit so worked in the schools of the prophets that when Saul hunted for death, Hunting for David came in connection with one of these schools. The Spirit came upon him and he prophesied. But we need something more lasting than Saul had. Take hold of God. You have little enough time in which to form characters fit for the future. Exodus says, You shall not follow a multitude to do evil, neither shall you speak in a cause to decline of the many to rest judgment. Luther the influence of this one man who dared to think and act for himself in religious matter was to affect the church and the world, not only in his own time, but in all future generations. There's one man. He decided, I'm going to stick to the word. I don't care what the Pope says. I don't care what the Archbishop says. I want to know what does the word say. Please don't misunderstand me. Am I saying don't seek the counsel of Religious, learned men. Am I saying that? I'm not saying that. In the counsel of many there is wisdom. But don't let anyone dictate to you what you must That's what I'm saying. And let alone try to reach the level of your spiritual guide and confess to him all that you have done. Confess your sins to Jesus. And if you have hurt someone, go and say sorry to him irrespective of there's, if there's a coach or a spiritual guide hiding in the woodwork. Matthew 23, 8-10, But be not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren, and call no man your father upon this earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven, neither you be called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. Is what I'm saying biblical? Master, Catechesis, a guide, that is a teacher, a master. I don't need one of them to tell me what to believe. That doesn't mean I cannot study what they have said and compare it with the Word of God. By these words, Christ meant that no man is to place his spiritual interest under another as a child is guided and directed by an earthly father. This has encouraged the spirit of desire for ecclesiastical superiority which has always resulted in the injury of men who have trusted and addressed as father 
It confuses the sense of the sacredness of the prerogatives of God. Spot on. As an earlier age, the special truths for this time are found not with the ecclesiastical authorities, but with men and women who are not too learned or too wise to believe the word of God. If you want confusion in the world, then believe every theologian out there. They differ as far as the East is from the West. Take any aspect. Take baptism. You have churches that baptize adults. Some of them sprinkle them. Some of them pour little water over them. You have people that baptize them seven times. You have people that dump them three times. You have people that say, oh, the infants must be baptized. The list is endless. And it's sought up by the theologians. I have nothing against godly theologians. And I've, I enjoy reading their writings and studying it and comparing it with the word of God. We can be led by godly men, but that doesn't mean that these people are your, to be your guide and certainly not your pope. Our great weakness is in placing men where God should be to be looked up and confided in. I don't believe we need any of these six structures. I believe in small groups. I believe in coming together and studying the Bible and praying together and seeking counsel from the Lord. And I believe in asking counsel of learned men who have studied these things more than I have. Yes, but I believe in the paramount superiority of the word of God. And every single thing must be tested by that word. Psalm 32, verse 8. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. God wants a personal relationship with you and me. The gospel is not about things. The gospel is not about rituals. The gospel is not about magic formulas and magic numbers. The gospel is not about chastisement to see greater light. The gospel is a relationship. And God has put men and women on this earth and marriage as an example of that relationship. God forbid if I would have to whip myself daily to get the attention of my wife. Wouldn't that be pathetic? Isaiah 48, 17, Thus says the Lord thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldst go. Trust in the Lord your God, trust in his word, and no one needs to be lost. May God help us as we further study the inroads of spiritual exercises to take the place of faith. It's going to become very serious. Thank you.
Now, in part one, what we dealt with was the exercises of Loyola. And we saw how the spiritual exercises of life are being applied in the world today in many forms and many guises and that they are a counterfeit to faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is something that you grasp because it says so. The word says so. Faith is total trust. The spiritual exercises are hands-on. You experience, you have a, a feeling, you have a meeting with whatever it is you are imagining until it becomes real. So it is the counterfeit to faith. Unfortunately, this has crept in to every aspect of Christianity. And it is a very delicate subject because everything we're going to speak of is in vogue today. And because it is in vogue doesn't necessarily mean that it is from God. The Reformation rejected the spiritual exercises as a means of finding with God and Luther taught that the just shall walk by faith. You walk by faith. Now how are they putting spiritual exercises into practice? Ignatius Loyola said the first thing you have to do is imagine. You must visualize it and it must become a reality and then you must actually get to the point where you communicate on a one-to-one -one basis, and there are various rituals that you go through until you finally have this spiritual experience. Now, the first mega churches to put it into practice were some of the very big evangelization churches that beamed it up throughout the world, their television networks. Robert Schuller. Here is Paul Yonggi Cho, head of the world's largest church in South Korea. the book, The Fourth Dimension. And Robert Schuller said the following in regard to visualization in the foreword to this book. He said, I discovered the reality of that dynamic dimension in prayer, fourth dimension, in prayer that comes visualizing. Don't try to understand it, just start to enjoy it. It's true, it works, I tried it. Now visualization is one of the, is the first method, if you like, of the spiritual exercises of Loyola. And it is a form of hypnosis. Psychologist Michael Yatko explains many therapists aren't even aware that they're doing hypnosis. They're doing what they call guided imagery, which is visualization. Or guided meditation which are all very mainstream hypnotic techniques. If you need hypnosis to capture your loved one, then you're in big, big trouble. If you can't do it with being yourself, you then forget it. Here we have the inner experience explored, mystical experience registry, Carl Jung. Now we'll tie psychology 
will tie spiritual meditation and visualization together with all of these techniques in order to experience a phenomenon. Now, Carl Jung had mystical experiences himself. The Swiss psychologist and major contributor to psychotherapy, Carl Jung, cultivated the ability to have visions from deep imagination. Some would label these explorations as mystical experience, while others would say they are more akin to the sort of creative thinking artists did. So there's a fine line here. In addition to these experiences, Jung had several spontaneous visions when he was recovering from a heart attack when he was about 69 years old. All of these visions are described in detail in his book, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. And I want you to see how this happened and where he went. I'm going to read one of them. This comes from the Mystical Experience Registry, Jung's Recorded active imagination experience. Jung uses a visual technique that he has found helps him go deeper into active imagination. This technique is realistic visualization as descended blatant. In this experience, he figures that he has descended about a thousand feet. So you go down, 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 down. There he discovers a cosmic abyss. Next, he sees something like a moon crater, and then he has the feeling that he's in the hand of the dead. Near the steep slope of a rock, he catches sight of two people, one an old man and the other a beautiful young girl. I want you to notice what he's, what he's seeing and as he's visualizing. He picks up his courage and approaches them. He listens carefully to what they say. The old man turns out to be the biblical figure, Elijah. Hmm. And the girl... Salome. Now, there's an odd couple. That's an extreme. Elijah, who was translated without seeing death. Elijah, the type of the anti-typical end-time Elijah. Salome, a totally different type. She was the daughter of Herodias. He's before the king. She's the one who asked for the head of John the Baptist. That's an interesting typology. We'll deal with that in the next lecture. So here is this odd couple, one for good and one for evil. And what does he imagine? What a strange couple. But Elijah tells Jung that he and Salome belong together for all eternity. What do we have here? We have yin-yang. We have the fusion, the cosmic fusion, pantheistic fusion of good and evil, and they belong together for all eternity. A large is a third, a large black snake. Jung sticks close to Elijah and keeps his distance from Salome. I would do that too, by the way. You could lose your head in the process. You never know. Over time... Jung holds conversation with Elijah, who eventually changes into another figure, Philemon. Philemon teaches Jung about the nature of human consciousness, how autonomous inner figures can act. It is the inner figure that seems to hold this knowledge, not Jung. 
Again, Jung's inner figure changes. This time it alters to take on the form of the Egyptian notion of the spirit car. Vintage edition of memories, dreams, reflections. There is the quotation. So here you have the full catastrophe. Good, evil, inner voices, and the soul spirit which is the car, which is part of the human makeup. Now let's go to St. Louis University. Ignatian passion. The challenge of the cross in the 21st century. Now we're talking Jesuit. Straight up. Ignatian passion. Carl Jung and the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola. Presenter Anthony T. Moore, PhD, special assistant to the president, Georgetown University. Jesuit University. Fascinating. What do 20th century Swiss psychoanalyst and a 16th century Spanish mystic have to say to each other? Talking about Ignatius Loyola and Jungian psychology. Hmm. This workshop is based on the premise that Carl Jung offers a uniquely compatible psychological framework for understanding the dynamics of the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola. Here we have a marriage of convenience. It will begin with an overview of the structure of the psyche according to Jung. The Jungian framework will then be applied to the spiritual exercises. Some of the themes covered will be the archetypical in Ignatius' account of his conversion experience at Loyola, discernment of spirits, movement of the self towards wholeness, the principle and foundation of the desires of the authentic self, connecting to unconscious psychic energy and hearing the call of the king, the practice of Jungian active imagination and Ignatian contemplation. This is a cult to its very core. But this forms the base of modern spirituality. Gone is the walk where you walk by faith and you trust the Lord because he said so. Gone is the phase where you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now you have to experience it in a tangible, touchable feeling. So it's no longer faith. It's no longer substance of things hoped for and evidence of things not seen because it becomes a reality. Let's see how the same contemplation works outside of the church. According to my is a self-study program. This is the Oprah Winfrey website of spiritual psychotherapy contained in three books. It is not a religion, but rather a psychological mind training based on universal spiritual themes. So here you have the same type of approach completely outside of the spiritual realm, and we're moving into a totally different realm here. And it's being offered in a secular capacity. So let's have a look at how they do this. Here is the 
discussion, the power of meditation with Oprah and Cheryl Richardson, Oprah and, and life coach. Please note the terminology. The terminology is even the same. Coach, Cheryl Richardson, talk about the importance of meditation, explain how you can get started centering upon yourself. Here we go. Cheryl, but don't worry if nothing miraculous happens in the next five minutes, as long as you spend five minutes of quiet time with yourself, just turning your vision, which is what closing your eyes allows you to do, you've succeeded. You've accomplished something very, very important. As a matter of fact, probably one of the most important things in your life. So I'm going to just do a five-minute meditation, guided visualization. Are you getting the key over here? You might want to put things down on the floor around you, get comfortable, sit in a way that feels comfortable to you. That's the basis of the first step towards hypnosis. Oprah. So just start there, and you will be surprised by the discipline that comes from doing it on a regular basis, how your life begins to unfold for you differently. I call it centering upon myself. All right, so we find it in the secular world, the mega media, and millions of people are drinking it in in the spiritual and the non-spiritual world. Let's go to another world. Let's go to the sports world. Here is the official webpage of the Olympics that have just taken place, the Beijing 2008 Olympics. One world, one dream. Isn't that interesting? You know, there's so much to read between the lines. One world, one dream. This is the mega movement to the one world mindset. Well, let's have a look. Black Pope Hans Kolmbach, the Jesuits general, what do they have to say in this quote? The Jesuits in sports, they're the ones in government. They're the ones behind professional sports. The owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers in 2000 is the Knights of Malta. The owner of the Detroit Lions in 2000 is the Knights of Malta. All the top owners of these ball clubs, for the most part, are Knights of Malta, getting the people whooped up on this hoopla over games and sports while they're busy creating a tyranny. Well, that's a quote from an author, and they do own the sports world. They are the masters of visualization. That's where their spiritual exercises come from. And they're using it in sports. Visualization and sports psychology, you can check it out anywhere you want. Mind training for triathlon, whatever the mind can conceive and believe, it can achieve. That's the power of positive thinking. Do you lack confidence? Do you need this, that, that, and the other? I'll show you how to do it. The essential component to visualization, visualization is the best method for programming yourself for success. Through the all-powerful subconscious mind, the key to all sports. This is the single, simple act of regular mentally imagining yourself performing at your peak level. That's even more important than the training. You sit down, you relax, and you run in your head, and you win. Power of positive thinking. Trouble is, what if everybody starts doing that? Who's going to win then, you know? Just a thought, never mind. So here are some 
subconscious goes into overgear. Effective visualization is the answer to overcoming most triathletes' problems and reaching the next level of improvement. The main reason why the daily visualization recording is so effective, now you get a recording and you play it into your ear, is because of automatic relaxation. Now listen to their own words. The hypnotic the recording places you in an easy and automatic state of relaxation. Perfect. The visualization gets more powerful each day. The recording has to be designed to become stronger and more effective by day. It can even work while you're asleep. Now imagine the relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus compares the relationship with your wife in a husband and wife situation. So if I want a good relationship with my wife, I get my pendulum out, I get my music out, and I go, ooh, until I go, ooh, and then I got a maid. That's pathetic. That's pathetic. Let's take another one. Are you a better swimmer than your results are showing? Mind training for swimmers. And who are the trainers? Craig Townsend. What? Hypnosis. Many techniques such as visualization had to be specially tailored and specialized to suit swimmers. Otherwise, they simply didn't work. And so many head coaches, swimmers around the world, and also many U.S. university competitive swimming programs use this technique. Here's another one. And stay there. Who are the, ma- the people training these, these people? The psychotherapist, hypnotherapist, author, lecturer, then they give his name, psychotherapist, 24 hours of clinical experience. He trains warm golfers, tennis players, baseball players, martial arts, bowlers, fencers, a shooting match. Everybody comes to him to get this whoopla. The power of visualization. Here's another man, author. And there's his name, is a master educator on mental training to achieve peak performance, psychologist who has worked with Olympic athletes and Team Canada, da-da-da-da-da. What it does, reality beyond hypnosis. Are you getting the drift? So we're not making this up? Power of visualization has helped millions of people achieve goals. So you need visualization to achieve your relationships on a spiritual level as well. So now let's go to blatant New Age. New Age, Ascended Masters Research Center, gems from the Ascended Masters, true visualization and excerpt from I Am Discourse. Visualize Visualize ourselves to the point of being God. True visualization is God's attribute and power of sight acting in the mind of men. When one consciously pictures in his mind the desire he wishes fulfilled, he is using one of the most powerful, bringing it into visible, tangible experience. I am God. I can do it. I have the power within me. This is the language of the serpent. Dave Hunt writes in his Occult Invasion, Occultism is always, has always involved three techniques for changing and creating reality. Thinking visualization. There is no doubt that this technique is not a religious technique. 
solely. It is used across a broad spectrum of human activity. Now let's get back to Robert Schuller. He said, you don't know what power you have within you. You make the world into anything you choose. Yes, you can make your world into whatever you want. This is power religion. True religion is magnifying Jesus and he must become more and I must become less. It is important to remember that meditation in any form is the harnessing by human means of God's divine laws we are endowed with a great many powers and forces that we do not yet fully understand. The most effective mantras employ the M sound. You can get the feel of it by repeating I am, I am, I am, I am, I am, many times over. Isn't that a blasphemy? To say that I am. Move into mighty moods of meditation, he says. Draw energy from the centers of sacred solitude, serenity, and Silence, sacred silence. Find yourself coming alive in the garden of the prayer called meditation. That's your own little private place. Yes, the New Ages have grabbed hold of meditation. Action, hear me. Let's not give up the glorious God-given gift of meditation by turning it over to those outside of our faith. So now they're using this hypnotic tool and any form of hypnosis is never from God. Why? Because God has never designed that one mind should be subject to another in anything. You are a free agent to God and not to someone else. True meditation is always word-based. Psalms 119, 140-48. Mine eyes prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. Contemplate the word. Not visualize things and then, you know, let it happen. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, I will meditate also all thy works and talk about thy doing. That is, living the word, believing the word and talking about the goodness of God. The word meditate, he asked the primitive root to ponder, converse, commune, complain, declare, meditate. They talk. So when the Bible uses this word, it says, talk to God. He's your friend. Don't go, ooh, don't talk. Talk like with the friend. Pastor Steve Mitchell, Garden City, Grace, Brethren Church, quotes Shula as saying, the secret of winning, which is really quite simple, find out what would impress the non-church in your community, then give it to them. Wow. Whatever it takes, just do it. He took his cues from Norman Vincent Peale and began an approach to ministry that all but did away with expository preaching centering on God's word. Let's replace that. And it starts with great health where people's psychological and emotional needs. Well, you don't have to go to church for that. You can tune in to Oprah Winfrey for that. You don't have to go to church. And do that elsewhere. This approach shifted the focus from God to man and ultimately gave birth to a lot of what we see today in terms of pragmatic or do whatever works to get the focus in, regardless of whether we see these methods in the Bible or not. He's right. 
We're getting a man-centered religion. Shula said blatantly the church's problem is that it had a God-centered theology for centuries when it needs a man-centered one. Self-esteem the New Reformation, page 150. So we have to get away from this God-centered religion to a man-centered religion. And my question is, where do you get that idea from? Malachi Martin, Keys of this Blood, Roman Catholic Pontifical Professor, at the conclusion of Vatican II, Pope Paul VI told the bishops that their church had decided to opt for man and to serve man to help him build his home on this earth. Man with his ideas and his aims, man with his hopes and fears, man in his difficulties and suffering. That was the centerpiece of the church's interest, said the pontiff to his bishops. So where did he get the idea? He got it from his Roman Catholic mentor, the Pope. That's where he got it from. This is a new theology to get the whole world into one big soup tank. He writes, Robert Schuller says, self-esteem then or pride in being a human being is the single greatest need facing the human race today. I strongly suggest that self-love is the ultimate will of man. Good grief. That what you really want more than anything else in the world is the awareness that you are a worthy person. Do not fear pride. The easiest job God has is to humble us. God's almost impossible task is to keep us believing every hour or every day how great we are as his sons and daughters of the hymns. We'll have to sing from now on, How great we are! How great we are! Isn't that terrible? What does Timothy say to Timothy? This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own self. He knows the verse. I don't have to read it to you. Self-love is something which the Bible condemns. The whole aim of Christianity is emptying yourself and pouring yourself out for others, not centering on self and imagining experience. This author writes, by beholding Christ, you will become changed until you will hate your former pride, your former vanity and self-esteem. Here we have two opposing gospels. Your self-righteousness and unbelief, you will cast these sins aside as worthless burden and will walk humbly before God. You will practice love, patience, gentleness, goodness, mercy, and every grace that dwells in the child of God and will at last find a place amongst the sanctified and the holy. The two religions are diametrically opposed to each other, the biblical view and the modern view. It is through this of self-esteem and self-sufficiency that Satan will inspire Seek to ensnare the people of God. Wow, I think this person knew what you wrote about 120 years ago. Through this avenue of self-esteem, that God's people will be ensnared. We will move from the lowly image 
to this image of power. Where does Shula stand with Rome? Shula had sympathized with Catholicism in the past, 1972, in the Bishop Fulton Sheen. That man had some interesting things to say about end-time events. Wow, fascinating. And he said, we're right on the button. Just two sides are going to oppose each other. To his pulpit and joined with Catholic bishops at their mass. And the annual Mary Hour. So he's had that experience. Shula said, it's time for Protestants to go to the shepherd, to the pope, and say, what do we have to do to come home? So was planning for the building of his crystal cathedral. He made a special trip to Rome to ask for the Pope's blessing. So if he gets his blessings there, why not his theology as well? He's got Vatican II theology, and who were the champions of Vatican II theology? The Jesuits. In 1985, the Paulist National Catholic Evangelization Association and jointly published What Christians Can Learn from One Another, about evangelizing adults, which contained a chapter by Billy Graham and the book called For Greater Cooperation Between Protestants and Catholics and so-called evangelism. And there were articles by Cardinal Bernardine, Robert Schuller, Bob Bright, Jack, all the others. You know, this is how it works. And then he makes this mega statement. I like this statement. Dreaming a bold, impossible dream that positive thinking believers in God will rise above the illusion that our sectarian religion has imposed on the world, and that leaders of the major faiths will rise above doctrinal idiosyncrasies, choosing not to focus on disagreements, but rather to transcend divisive dogmas, to work together to bring peace and prosperity out to the world. You take away doctrine. You're left with liturgy. No doctrine, liturgy. No doctrine, no methodology, no roadmap to Jesus. Replace it with a roadmap to self. That's the modern theology. Groundwork. Let's take it to the next level. Willow Creek. Spawning the children. Both believers. And the Saddleback leaders all received their training from Shula. And where are we going with this spiritual exercise? These were the mega churches that started. We've moved beyond that. We're just going through a little bit of history. Let's have a look at their buzzwords. Understanding the new terminology. This is the visualization. This is the terminology from Willow Creek. Visualization, formation, mentoring, spiritual direction. We spoke about that the previous night. Consensus, ecumenism, seismic shift into spiritual community, changing face of worship, stemming the tide. When you hear these bad words, run. What do they teach at Willow Creek? Meditation promoter Kerry White Kent writes positively about monastic communities. Fascinating. What did Ignatius say in his spiritual exercises? Praise much monastic institution. Here we're going back to monasticism. 
Martin Luther wrote that article that it is the worst evil that found on the planet. The worst evil when King Henry VIII, who was not a good man himself, said, clean up this mess. What they found in the monastic system is not fit for description. Evil system. Well, it's continued. Fascinating. Monastic communion, emergent church, discovering spiritual formation, all of these buzzwords. Kent identifies Scott McKnight as part of this mystical shift. McKnight acknowledges the Catholic connection to the contemplative practices. Kent also brings into our article priests, the Roman Catholic priests, or we need to know what we're dealing with. Richard Raw, who is in the same camp as someone like Matthew Fox, who speaks about the coming of the cosmic Christ, who is in the same camp as Tyler Bishabin, the Jesuit, all these people. And then she has no problem with Paul McIntino, who says, how big is your God? This is Willow Creek. Let's have a look at these people. Who are you? Richard Raw? Who are you? Well, this comes from a Roman Catholic webpage. He's, of course, a Roman Catholic priest. Bongos, dancers, father, mother, God, Richard Raw Mass at the Los Angeles Religious Education Congress. Raw changes some of the prayers of the liturgy of the Eucharist, opening the preface as he prayed. Father, Mother, God, before the consecration of the host, blah, 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 blah. Following the consecration, Raw said that Christ's blood will be poured for you and for all, so you will know your sins are forgiven. In prayer for the departed, he referred to them as especially your own beloved who are already with the Lord. Here we have Roman Catholic doctrine, Roman Catholic Jesuit-trained individuals, running the spiritual aspects of Willow Creek. And then there are institutions of repute who send thousands of people for education and training so that they can give spiritual direction within the church. And we're all over the world. These spiritual directors are popping up to train people in all the churches of the world as to how to obey your spiritual director, a perinde cadaver like a corpse. Raw prefaced the Our Father by saying, and now knowing more than we are many, though we come from different places and races, we all share the same Father, Mother, God. Excuse me, I don't have a Father, Mother, God, so I don't know who you're sharing yours with, but definitely not with me. Here is their magazine, Willow Creek Magazine, 2007, Rediscovering Spiritual Formation from Monastic Communities to the Emergent Church. Spiritual formation continues to shift and change a whole new generation of Christians. So now suddenly we must all be changed and we must experience the spiritual formation. 30 years ago, most evangelicals had never even heard the term Spiritual formation today is the subject of conferences. 
retreats, even the emphasis in countless seminary programs. Scott McKnight, New Testament scholar, author, professor of religious studies in North Park University, says even the acceptance of the term spiritual formation represents a shift in thinking, especially among evangelicals. Richard Foster's 1978 bestseller, Celebration of Discipline. Who are these people? These people are people who believe in this cosmic Christ who will come, this new age entity that will finally fuse everyone into one unrecognizable blob. And then he talks about how we do this. We reintroduce the evangelicals to classical spiritual disciplines. Please not the word. Reintroduce to classical spiritual disciplines. What are they? Solitude. Uh, who spent their time in solitude? Monks. They went and sat in a cell and there they had to perform their spiritual exercises. Silence. Fasting, a more contemplative approach to scripture and prayer. So now I have to do contemplative approach to visualizing. Who practiced that, by the way, and who taught it? Ignatius Loyola, the faith with this material. Such spiritual disciplines have been part of the Catholic tradition. This comes from whose webpage? Willow Creek. Such spiritual discipline has been part of the Catholic tradition for a long time, although they were often practiced primarily within the walls of monastic communities. Pastor and Willard brought them to the evangelical community, although it took a while for mainline and evangelical churches to embrace them. Marvelous, we're back to what Martin Luther condemned as a horrendous travesty of justice. The monks all came out of the woodwork married and became normal. You need a wife to be normal, gentlemen. Excuse me. Not these people. They're going back to monasticism. Eventually, these became accepted and even more institutionalized. Evangelicals began to think out loud about these things. Many of that has happened even in the last five years, says so-and-so, who formerly led the spiritual formation ministry in Willow Creek. In these institutions, is the spiritual exercises of Loyola being foisted upon a new generation of pastors and mentors and coaches and spiritual advisors. And then it is brought into the Christian church and we've regressed back to Catholicism. Mentoring goes mainstream. McKnight sees a trend towards a wider acceptance and use of spiritual directors which in the past were mostly a part of the Catholic tradition. Mentoring was done informally in the discipleship process years ago, but this is much more conscious and intentional. You know, it's books like Alice Freiling's The Art of Spiritual Listening, Margaret Gunther's Holy Spiritual Direction, I Need Some Guy, to tell me how to run a relationship and what to believe. What else are they saying? They're saying things are going to change. We need a seismic shift. 
We need rediscovering spiritual formation, stemming the tide, changing the face of worship, shifts, mission, mindset, change or die. This is magnificent. We're going into a mega change. This is the final thrust for changing the whole of Christianity into what was mystical, occult, here they write seismic shifts the winds of change are blowing leaders and entire congregations are making the choice to try something new they are looking at the world culture norms and trends they are daring to take a chance venture a risk find another way these paces are not compromising the teachings of the bible they are embracing each a new generation what a deception These courageous pioneers are not fleeing from the historical Christian faith and the gospel of Jesus. They are discovering innovative and spirit-anointed ways to make the message connect to an emerging generation. Is this generation ready to see this? A whole new cadre of leaders are being raised up and they understand that the form, style, structure of the church so well in the past are not sacred or sacrosanct away with them. We need something new. This seismic shift, shaking things up. And then he talks about this lady and how she had to get accustomed to the new music and the new styles. And eventually what we have is mantric music being played in the churches. Change. Very simple. If the local church refuses to change, it will die. And this sad reality is being experienced all over the world, so everybody is jumping onto this bandwagon. I have news for you. Preach truth, and the church will be full. All right? So we have all the elements of the color and all the names associated with Jesuit theology associated with Willow Creek where many, many people go for this training. Let's take it one step further. We're going through the progression. These are the last events in the history of this world. We are one step away from heaven. Rick Warren is a global strategist, theologian, pastor, philanthropist. The media has often named him America's most influential spiritual leader is America's pastor. As a global strategist, Warren advises leaders in the public, private, and faith sectors on leadership development, health, education, and faith in culture. He has been invited to speak at the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, the African Union, the Council of Foreign Relations, Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, Times Global Health Summit. I mean, this is an important man. Where did he receive his training? Also from Rothschild. Warren says, as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and Oxford Analytica, I might know as much about the Middle East as you, responding to some notion that he might not know what it comes from World Net Daily. Oh, so in a moment of uh, defensiveness, he says he's a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. That's interesting. And he's a member of Oxford Analytica. 
where all these Oxford professors, hobnobbit, including those who don't believe that God even exists. No, 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 I'll correct that. Almost certainly does not exist. Oxford Analytica, what is that? It's an international independent consulting firm drawing on a network of over 1,000 senior faculty members of Oxford University. And these are the insider Oxford groups. Now let's look at some of these statements. It is my deep conviction that anybody can be one to Christ if you discover the key to his or her heart. It may take some time to identify it, but the most likely place to start is with the person's felt needs. Go and satisfy the needs, and then you can start over there. God won't ask about your religious background or doctrinal views, the only thing that will matter is, did you accept what Jesus did for you and did you learn to love and trust him? doesn't matter what you believe. You can believe anything. doesn't matter about your doctrinal views. So if he says, if you love me, keep my doctrine, who cares? The last thing many believers need today is to go to another Bible study. They already know far more than they are putting into practice. Have you noticed that? The video I put up where we asked the people in Germany, and the one says, I'm a Protestant, but I've never read the Bible. And the other guy said, the Bible is something you don't read, it's just something you have. They know far more than they need already. Read a Bible study. Nah, forget about a Bible study. Warren advocates breath prayers. Many Christians use breath prayers throughout their day you choose a brief sentence or simply a phrase that can lead to Jesus in one breath. So now we're into mantras. That's akin to the Muslim with his beads and the Roman Catholic with his beads. Just having reduced it from having to know the whole Hail Mary to a little trial. A typical breath prayer would be breathing in saying, yeah. What idiocy! Until you're finally so hypnotized that your eyes are going around in circles and then you can see whatever you want to see in your imagination. That's a breath prayer. He says that's just great. If you want Jesus to come back sooner, focus on fulfilling your mission, not figuring out prophecy. So forget about the Bible. Forget about prophecy. Practice your little breath prayers. The spiritual formation movement had a vital message for the church and has given the body of Christ a wake-up call, he says. Wow, so he's also into spiritual formation. Saddleback Pastor Lance Witt writes about the contemplative prayers in his article titled Enjoying God's Presence in Solitude. These are the spiritual exercises of Loyola. This is Jesuit counter-reformation theology, and it has taken over the Protestant churches. We are the presence of God, but that's easier said than done. And the article would use Thomas Merton as an example of someone who knew about solitude. But Merton's solitude was connected to Buddhist sympathies. That's fascinating. 
which finishes his article with the goal of solitude is not so much unplugged from my crazy world as it is to change frequencies so that I can hear the Father. Ah, so I need this direct contact. I don't want to walk with God by faith. He said I will take care of you, therefore he is taking care of me. I want to hear Hello, my child, can you hear me? Let me just turn up the phone a bit. That's not faith. It's no longer faith, and if it's not by faith, then it's sin. According to the Bible, Rick Moran has promoted a book called Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. In the time of departing, Jungman quotes Warren, who says of Thomas's book, Gary has spoken at Saddleback, and I think highly of his work. He tells them how they can make the most of their spiritual journeys. He places an emphasis on practical spiritual exercises. Are you getting the, the terminology here? Fascinating. It is particularly difficult to describe this type of prayer in in person. In general, however, centering prayer works like this. Choose a word, Jesus or Father, for example, as a focus for contemplative prayer. Repeat the word silently in your mind for a set amount of time under 20 minutes. Brainwashing until your heart seems to be repeating the word by itself just as naturally and involuntarily as breathing. There you go. Repeating this thing over and over. Listen to his new age terminology. Rick Warren speaking. This is a time which calls for a critical mass or transformational leaders who will commit to creating synergy of energy within their circle of influence so that new levels of social, economic, organization, and spiritual success can be reached. We have not, however, developed the leaders we need for this noble task. To reach such heights, we will need to untap the leadership potential of skillful leaders who are successfully directing various organizations. Some of these men and women, knowledgeable and committed to their profession, will be the transformational leaders we need to create energy of energy. Is that religion or hocus pocus? This is not religion. What did he say about ecumenism? I really do feel that these people are brothers and sisters in God's family. I'm looking to build bridges with the Orthodox Church, looking to build bridges with the Catholic Church, with the Anglican Church, and say, what can we do together? that we have been unable to do by ourselves. On interfaith, the church is bigger than any organization in the world. Then you add in Muslims, you add in Hindus, you add in all the different religions, and you use those houses of worship as distribution centers, not just for spiritual care, but for health care. We're shifting the emphasis to needs-based theology, man's needs, that theology is about God. Theos. God. I go to church to worship God. If you come to church to get your stomach filled, you're a bread and fish Christian. If you come to church to worship God and your stomach gets fed, 
That's faith. Turn it round, it's presumption. And then he goes into his peace plan. Peace plan is a massive effort to mobilize one billion Christians around the world into a church to church effort. The peace plan is an effort to led by small group teams. Did we speak about them last time? The global giants of our day, and what are the global giants that we have to attack? Spiritual emptiness, corruptly disease, illiteracy. Well, excuse me, that's a social program, that's not religion. If you want to teach people about Jesus Christ and salvation by Him, then people, and this is the peace plan, this is the all that unites the United Nations and all the churches of the world into the last mega drive called peace. And my part says, when they say, peace, peace, sudden destruction, well, it's manner. First in the church's local community, which he calls Jerusalem, nearby community, which he calls Judea, regional areas, crossing cultural barriers, which he calls Samaria, and globally to the entire world. Rick Warren said repeatedly, this is why God else I have done was simply preparation for the peace plan hmm. to God's heart for the world. Let's look at this peace plan. It's fascinating. At a purpose-driven conference, he said that the peace plan will be a revolution for global Christianity, and I'm looking at a stadium full of people who are telling God they will do whatever it takes to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I have a theology is that. That's Roman Catholic theology. That's not biblical theology. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, we're looking for the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God will only come when the empires and structures of this world are taking sway. And that's a kingdom of God ruled from Jerusalem here on this planet. Rick Warren's peace plan, number one, P stands for plant church. E, equip leaders. A, C, care for the sick. E, educate the next generation. What's missing? There's no mention of Christ. There's no mention of the gospel. This is a social program. We don't need to call this worship. This is not worship. The UN Millennium Development Goals. Let's have a look at them. Match the five points of the peace plan. Warren lays out the global plan. In the 21st century, we are going global, mobilizing the American church to help internationally. President Kagan will welcome us to Rwanda for a joint project amongst the government, business, and the church. Ooh. Where did we hear that before? Who was here for the lecture is the Beamable Sustainable Princess? Did we hear something like that? That we have fascism in progress. 
How will Saddleback tackle these huge problems with our peace plan? He is. And then he goes through that ritual again. And Q, what is your greatest hope for all of this? A second reform. Hmm. The first one was about belief. This one will be about deeds. It is about what the church should be doing. We will lay all this out for our people. Purpose community. World. So this is a new reformation. And so I thought, you know, they're having a peace plan. And we should have a new reformation too. And this is where this idea came from. Now look at the Millennium Plan of Warren. Plant churches, develop global partnerships for development. These churches are partnerships for development. Equip servant leaders, lifelong learning. Assist the poor, eradicate extreme poverty. Care for the sick, reduce child mortality, improve maternal health, combat HIV, etc. Educate universal primary education. They're identical. Why? Because they have the same author. And who runs them from their crown temple? The Jesuit. So this is a Jesuit mega thrust counter reformation. Here is the UN Millennium Development Goals, high level event in the Millennium Development Goals. Wednesday September 2008, all the mega leaders came together. This is now. The eight millennium development goals, which range from having extreme poverty, halving extreme poverty, to halting the spread of HIV, all of these must be reached by 2015. We home straight. We have everybody on board. And the governments are going to play their role. And big industry is going to play its role. And together we'll conquer the world. Four steps. The final genesis. This is the fourth step. Spiritual formation. Now let's talk. Spiritual formation is vogue. Spiritual formation is coming to your town. And it's coming to your church. And forewarned is, what is it? What does it say? Four hours. Let's have a look at Spurgeon. First, let's establish his credentials. What was he? Jesuit. The mega man at the UN. He is responsible for its spirituality, which is Jesuit spirituality. Thailand and the Future Humanity, edited by Thier Maynard, this is a book about Thailand, brings together essays by leading experts from a range of disciplines and perspectives who reflect on Thailand's legacy for today's globalized world. These people were mega thinkers in this direction. Thailand dreamed of the humanity merging into God, and each realizing his own godhood at the mega point. Hired many of today's New Age leaders, and he's the most quoted New Age leader in the world. Pantheism. That will be the omega of apostasy, and spiritual formation is part of that. Listen to his terminology. And when you hear this terminology, and when these buzzwords start falling, let your ears prick up. Tyler de Chardin spoke of 
value genesis. He spoke of collective co-creation, combined effort, the omega point, stages of earth and of man, cosmogenesis. These are all interesting words. Cosmos coming together. New genesis, minds coming together. The point of union of pantheistic fusion of all things is omega. Through Tyler, you hear about whatever does not merge is evil. This is the new spirituality. A common chorale driven by Hegelian dialectic, Tylerian philosophy and fear. Let's go. New genesis. You will have to change your exclusive separatist ways. You will have to fuse into this multifaceted in multiculturalism, every faction retains its identity, yet merges into a cosmic fusion. The Muslim, the Jew, the Christian, the black, the white, the Hispanic, the Asian, they all integrate with one culture, without one culture dominating the other. And then we need a new Christ, divested of his biblical identity, to satisfy them all. Here's a book, Brainwashing, a synthesis of the Russian textbook on psychopolitics. Notice what they used in politics. Man is already a colonial aggregation of cells. Cells. Cell groups. Cells. Where does that cell come from? Where does the word cell come from, by the way? Who used it first? In the biological sense, it was used by Robert Hooke, who looked into the microscope and he saw tissue and he said, ooh, that looks like a cell. And he called it a cell. And what did it remind him of? Monastic rooms. Monastic monks set in cells. Okay. Consider him an individual would be an error. Sickness could be considered to be a disloyalty to the remaining organism on the part of one organism. We can see with ease that the revolt is death, that the revolt of any part of the organism results in death. Thus we see that there can be no compromise with rebellion. That's why in a cell group, no rebellion is allowed. You must be subject to your spiritual director. And you must obey him as though you were a corpse. Anyone refusing to be herded must be amputated for the common good, Augustine argued. A horticulturist prunes a rotten branch to take the diseased limbs to conserve life. Even so, may the erring be constrained. This is Roman Catholic theology. That's why you may not speak or think or say anything. Tyler de Chardin declared, the outcome of the world, the gates of the future, the entry into the superhuman will open only to an advance of all together in a direction and find completion in spiritual renovation of the earth altogether. Once complete unity has been achieved, Christ who will be the omega point will appear. Man will be more than man, what will be what Tyler called ultra human. The cosmos will be transformed and the glory of it all will be established. Malachi, he writes that this is Tyler's philosophy. 
As we know, Thailand merges pantheism with these Christian doctrines. He says, as we know, the belief that the human individual cannot perfect himself or fully exist except through the organic unification of all men in God and fundamental to Christian doctrine. We have to have this pantheistic fusion. Thus, perfection for Thailand is not by the individual becoming one with Christ in absolute self-surrender, forsaking all others, no, Tylard says that the individual can perfect himself except through the organic unification of God. Pantheism. Thus all human minds must be joined in what he calls a superorganism. We need consensus theology. Remove that which is divisive. Please don't preach about the errors of this doctrine or the errors of that doctrine. That's divisive. We'll even make laws, we'll call it hate speech. A general convergence of religions upon a universal Christ who satisfies them all. That seems to me the only possible conversion of the world and the only form in which a religion of the future can be conceived. There is a Jesuit thinking. Here's Matthew Fox, who's quoted on all those web pages of all these organizations training these new mentors. And he calls it the cosmic... Christ, the coming of the cosmic Christ, Matthew Fox, is replete with pantheism. Modern Christianity has been molded by Jesuit encounter theology and spiritual formation. Guided by Ignatian spiritual direction until the soul is fragmented, encounter dependent and subservient to the church. To become a moron, walking after whatever some leader has to say, it's horrendous. Document Vatican II. Now let's look where it comes from. Informing their consciences, the faithful must pray, pay careful attention to the sacred and certain teachings of the church. For the Catholic Church is by the will of Christ the teacher of the truth. Don't ever speak against the church. The education of conscience is indispensable for human beings who are subjected to negative influences and tempted by sin to prefer their own judgment and to reject authoritative teaching. That's Vatican II. That's why in all of these groupings, you may not go outside of consensus theology. You may not make a point, and you will not stick your head above the others and say, but, but, but doesn't this Bible verse say, no, you're not allowed to. So what is spiritual formation? What does it mean? Does the Bible know anything about spiritual formation? No. Romans 12 verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We need a transformation. The old man of sin must die. Conform, what does that mean? To fashion alike that is conformed to the same pattern, conform to fashion self according to who? According to Christ. The Bible speaks of Christ formed within you, not having a form without. But little children of, what, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ is formed in you. True Christianity follows the pattern man. And the pattern man is Jesus Christ. Not some spiritual director who has his own problems. The pattern man is always Jesus. And here is my guide. As I said before, 
I can, I can exchange ideas and I can learn from those who have more experience than myself. Yes, I can. But I may never, never let such an individual overshadow me. The Bible remains my standard and nothing else. Now let's have a look where this leads. Hope is there. Remember, these are the people that wear the little anklets and the little pain inducers, like Ignatius Loyola said, is that your penance must be internal but external as well, and that you must chastise yourself with pain inducers and, and whips, but just make sure you don't kill yourself in the process. Here is Opus Dei, the way a collection of 999 religious maxims published by Escriva, oh, sorry, Saint Escriva, the founder of Opus Dei. 999. Turn that upside down, what is that? 6.06. And this is what he says. The true Christians must be disciplined and obedient to their spiritual directors. Point number one. In my previous lecture, did I show you in the Protestant notes and handbooks on spiritual direction that the same prerequisite was required? Yes or no? Absolutely the same. So this has been brought into Protestantism. Opus Dei and formation. Maxim 377 of those 999 states, And how shall I acquire our formation? How shall I keep our spirit? By being faithful to the specific norms your director gave you and explained to you, and be faithful to them, and you will be an apostle. Oops. So spiritual formation literally means being brainwashed to the point where you obey mindlessly to whatever your church leaders have to say. God forbid if we get to that point of brainwashing. 35th Jesuit General Congregation at the Vatican in 2008. These are the electors, the inner circle, the outgoing and the new, all together. And their spiritual formation, spiritual direction has infiltrated the whole world. This is the text of the homily of the papal legate Cardinal Frank Rode, CM, Prefect of the Congregation for Institutes consecrated life and societies of apostolic life given at the opening of the GC 35 in Rome. This is the of the Vatican of the Jesuits where they just voted in the new Jesuit general. And what was the speech about? Could you enlighten us, sir? This is his speech to these electors. Certainly and necessarily during this congregation you are carrying out an important work but it is not a distraction from your apostolic activity. As St. Ignatius teaches you in the spiritual exercises you must with the same vision of persons look at the entire surface of the earth crammed with men listening to the spirit the creator who renews the world and returning to the fonts to preserve your life without losing your own lifestyle 
The commitment to discern the signs of the times, the difficulties and responsibilities, blah, 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 many says. Now, it becomes broader. It is not only for your own Jesuit brother that you provide an apostolic formation. There are many institutes of consecrated life who follow in an Ignatian spirituality. Pay attention to your choices. There are many future priests in your colleges and universities who are protecting their ministry. There are many those within and with outside the church who frequent your centers of learning, seeking a response to the challenges which science, technology, globalization pose to humanity, to the church and to the faith, with the hope of receiving a mission which will to construct the world of truth and freedom, of justice and peace. Who's behind formation? The Jesuits. And they were reminded of their duty to introduce to every single institute that falls under their influence. Your work must be eminently apostolic with human evangelical fullness you will do this everywhere. It must always be carried out in the light of your charism in such a way that the growing participation of laity at all the trained spiritual directors who will in your activities does not obscure your identity but rather enriches it with the collaboration of those who come in from other cultures share your style and the the church is waiting for a light from you to restore the census ecclesiae. This is the speech before the election of the new Jesuit general. The spiritual exercises of the are your speciality. The rules of ecclesiae from an integral and essential part of the masterpiece of Catholic spirituality. They form, as it were, a golden clasp which exercises clothes as based on scripture and tradition. The doctrinal diversity of those with all levels by vocation and mission are called to announce the kingdom of truth and love. Here's the mission. Push this issue. Bring the world on board. Our final come in with spiritual formation. Who are the leaders of spiritual formation in the world today? Let's see if they have Jesuit connections. These are the ones who are being quoted in all churches of the world. Did I repeat that word? All church world. Richard J. Foster, Christian psychologist. Interesting. International fame founder of Renovare. Renovare. Foster is the founder of an organization called Renovare, which has powerful, influential support from Christian world. The co director is William A. Vaslik, a former Lutheran pastor. Meaning to make a new spirituality. So, the spirituality that has kept Christians alive. The last 2,000 years is finally at the point 
It's promoting the revi- promoting the revival of meditative and contemplative traditions of the Catholic mystic, Zen Buddhism, and psychotherapy. Let's have a look. Here's their own webpage, bringing the church to the church's personal life. What are they teaching? Contemplative, the prayerful life. Interesting word. That's visualization. That's Ignatius Loyola, theology. Social justice, the compassionate life. Holiness, the virtuous life. Incarnational, the sacrifice. Charismatic, the spirit-empowered life. All of this is experiential theology. Evangelical, the word-centered life. I will believe it when I see it. How is it with your soul? The Renovare movement fosters as the heart of social justice. How is it with your soul? The name Renovare means to renew. And what are we going to deal with? Spiritual formation. Spiritual exercises. Spiritual gifts. Acts of service. This is a new religion. It's an old occult compasses. His book, Celebration of Discipline, there it is. Celebration of Discipline, there is the man. The Path to Spiritual Growth is available with a study guide and also a 13-session video-based curriculum designed to help Christians experience authentic transformation through engagement with classical Christian spirit. So what do you have in mind for us, sir? How do we do this? He says enough water has gone under the bridge of spiritual formation. It's become a household term. Everybody knows what it is now. We've moved away from this not knowing where it comes from. Big orders. Today it is a rare person who has not heard of the term seminary courses in spiritual formation proliferate like baby rabbits. You're right, my friend. Huge numbers are seeking to become certified as spiritual directors to answer the cry of multiplied thousands for spiritual direction and more spiritual formation. A pastoral letter by Richard Foster. Let's go. We need this in the world. Quaker minister, that's what he was, Richard Foster, published this work, Celebration of Discipline, The Path to Spiritual Growth, hailed by none other than Christian as one of the ten best books of the 20th century. I want to know what we're dealing with. Voted by the readers of that magazine as the third most influential book after the Bible. That's pretty powerful stuff. Pretty powerful stuff. Let's read what James what Albert James Dagger of Media Spotlight comments on this. He says, Unfortunately, what has served to do is open the person to demonic influences that assage his or her conscience with a feeling of euphoria and even love emanating from the presence that had invaded their consciousness. This euphoria can is then believed to validate that the person is on the right spiritual path. It may result in visions, experiences, stigmata, levitation, even healings and other apparent miracles. This is where we're going. 
What does Richard Foster teach? Quotes from his from him. The inner world of meditation is most easily entered through the door of the imagination. Where did we read that? In the spiritual exercises of Loyola. Okay. This is the third most influential book after the Bible. We fail today to appreciate its tremendous power. The imagination is and the conceptual thought is stronger than the world. In the West, our tendency to deify the merits of rationalism and its does have merit, has caused us to ignore the value of imagination. So let's go into contemplative in an imaginative voice. Let's go rooted in the senses. Jesus taught this way, making constant appeal to the imagination and the sentence and the senses. In his autobiography, oh, this is fascinating. C. G. Jung described how difficult it was for him to humble himself and once again play imagination games of a child. Psychology, spiritual exercises, demonology. And then whom does he pray? Richard Foster says, Ignatius of Loyola, in his spiritual exercises, constantly encouraged his readers to visualize the gospel story. People. They are Jesuit-trained individuals or Jesuits themselves who are bringing a new spirituality to all churches in the world. This is the enemy of Christ working to destroy true Protestant Christianity. He gave was designed to open the imagination. Is he against Ignatius Loyola here? No, he's for him. He even included a meditation entitled Application of the Senses, which is an attempt to help us utilize all five senses as we picture the gospel event. You said your mantra, with your stupid little breath prayer, until your eyes start going round and round and round. And then you visualize the place, you see where you are, and then you touch it, you taste it, you smell it, you see it, until it permeates your entire being, and then it becomes a speak with the entity that appears to you and it tells you whatever it wants to put into your hypnotized mind. Celebration of discipline introduces to the church the so-called masters of the interior life. Excuse me, who are the masters of the interior life? As Foster likes to call the medieval mystics. They alone have discovered the key to true spiritual life. And who are these exemplary ones that we have to follow in our spiritual contemplations? Besides Ignatius Loyola, he quotes Meister Eckhart. Meister Eckhart is the, the ultimate example, besides Loyola, of course. A Dominican monk who lived in the 13th and 14th century, and he ranked with Teresa, Avila, John of the Cross, Julian Norwich, etc., Thomas Merton, Foster Sites, and quotes Merton on at least nine separate occasions in celebration of discipline. 
He was a 20th century Roman Catholic who emerged himself in Buddhism and contemplated imagination and unity with the cosmos in Nirvana. Religion. The final category of discipline is the corporate. Foster states that the first corporate discipline is that of confession. Foster supports the position of the Roman Catholic Church complete with penance and absolution. So you have to do penance. We're going into the complete spiritual of Ignatius Loyola. I hope you don't have start hanging yourself up on hooks and beating the living daylights out of yourself soon. And then, and why not? Dietrich Bonhoeffer assures us that when I go to my brother to confess, I'm going to God. And Foster wants us to know the assurance of forgiveness when it is spoken by our brother or sister in the name of Christ. So now, in the cell groups, you are encouraged to confess to your mentor. He becomes, because it's a 12 around one group, the altar Christos. We have Roman Catholicism and we have generated a priest who call themselves spiritual directors, control your mind, make sure you don't rise up and think for yourself and crush underfoot anything that looks like dissent. Once when we were giving the confession of a lady, she looked at me and saw superimposed upon my eyes the eyes of another who conveyed to her a love and leased her to unburden her heart. That is sin. The Bible says, confess your faults one to another. In other words, I go to my brother and I say... I'm sorry that I hurt you. I'm sorry that I did this and this to you. Will you forgive me? That's fine. I can also go to a friend and say, you know what? I'm really struggling with my temper. Can you, can you pray for me? The new translations don't say false. What do they say? Confess your sins one to another. I have a mega problem with that. Take your sins to Jesus. He's the only one who can forgive you your sin. So this falls right nicely into this package deal. His last discipline is celebration. Start to express joy in all that we have learned thus far in the book, even participating in holy laughter. Let's have a cackle together. The third most influential book, as you enter the story, now, please notice what he's saying. You can bring Jesus into your presence as you enter the story, not as a passive observer, participant. You've imagined yourself into the scene. Remember that since Jesus lives in the eternal now and is not bound by time, this event in the past is a living present tense experience for him. Hence, you can actually encounter the living Christ in the event. Be addressed by his voice and be touched by his healing power. He can be more than imagination. He can be a genuine confrontation. Jesus Christ will actually come to you. What have we got there now? This is a cult to the highest degree. 
And this is what you do in the occult world. You conjure up this spirit. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again so that you can be where I am also. Not I'm going to play by faith. You accept that he is there. His book, Celebration of Discipline, originally had the word New Age on page 170, but this was changed to avoid criticism. We of the New Age can risk going into the tide, became changed to We Who Follow Christ can risk going into the tide. He encourages astral travel. The fourth form of meditation has its objective to bring you into a deep inner communion with the Father. Where you look at him and he looks at you in your imagination. Picture yourself walking along a lovely forest path. Take your time, allowing the blaring noise of your modern to be overtaken by the sound of rustling leaves and cool forest streams. Then he says, after a while there is a deep yearning within you to go into the upper regions beyond the clouds and your imagination allows your spiritual body, shining with light, to rise out of your physical body Look back so that you can see yourself lying on the grass and reassure your body that you will return momentarily. When I did this under the new age training of my father-in-law, it's called Oob. It's a cult. You come out of your body, you go up into the heavens, you experience whatever you will, you walk through walls. It's an hypnotic implant. It's not a reality. It's a lie. It's a hypnosis. And he's saying, do this, and this is what you want to read. He makes me sick. And then he teaches New Age mysticism and pantheism. After you've gained some proficiency in centering down, add five to ten minute meditation. Didn't Oprah Winfrey say on some aspect of creation, choose something in the created order, tree, plant, blah, 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 and so you carry on and you become part of the cosmic fusion. A large part of Renovado's spiritual discipline involves meditation on the writings of selected spiritual masters. Who are these spiritual masters? And there they are, from their own webpage. St. Francis, St. Catherine, St. Teresa, the others of the cross. Those are your examples of Christianity. We're back to Roman Catholicism. This is the Comfort Reformation. This is Jesuitism at its worst. Now, Let's make absolutely sure, I'm not guessing. We have to be thorough in our research because the criticism level will be severe. This is the Jesuit webpage. As they promote Richard Foster. This is for www.jesuitvolunteers.org. So, volunteers to the Jesuit order, what must you read? Please read the following simplicity, the art of living, uh, rich Christians in an age of hunger. This is a very challenging and readable book for the facts and figures about global greed and waste. This is all social doctrine. Freedom of Simplicity by Richard Foster. The Jesuit webpage, the Jesuit students read Richard Foster. Thank you very much. That tells me, don't read it. Be still, DVD, was released in April 2006. Quote from the DVD. What silence does is gives us a new concept of God. 
Sit there like a Buddhist, cross your legs, empty your mind and become brainless. And when you are totally brainless, listen for the voice. It will start speaking. The wonderful thing, says Richard Foster, about contemplative prayer is that it can be found everywhere, anywhere, anytime for anyone. We become a portable sanctuary so that we are living our life wherever he is aware of the goodness of God, the presence of God. Oh, Divine Master, teach me this mute language which says so much. Thank you. Not all. William Waswick, co-director with Richard Foster. Comment from Albert J. Dagnam. Shalom Institute for Spiritual Formation, Washington. This is interesting. They're all working together. Comment. The objective is to move from conscious communication with God to being in the presence, as Bill Waswick puts it. The presence would be to reach total enlightenment and eventually nirvana. I don't have to read anymore. This is Zen meditation. This is an ancient occult practice. No wonder we have to link up these religions and why Buddhism and all its contemplators and other activities must become Benedict with Buddhists April 17, 2008 at the interfaith meeting. Notice that he's also doing the same thing and Prince Charles does the same thing. Here we are receiving these New ideologies, new thoughts. Who created these thoughts in the first place? Who's behind the Dalai Lama? Who gives him his power and his authority out there? None other than these organizations themselves, the Roman Catholic Institute. Please note, here's a Buddhist gathering. Here is a statue of Buddha. And please look at that little picture down there. Who is that individual bowing down to a statue of Buddha? There she is in large, who is she? Mother Teresa. She has no problem bowing down to a statue of Buddha or as long as it's an icon and not the real thing. And here's Vietnamese Buddhist monk, Kish Nhat Thang, whatever, and he packs a stadium at what university? Loyola University. Fascinating to initiate students in Buddhist exercises. Catholic priest prays in a Buddhist monastery. Spirituality into the world. And this nice gentleman is a Jesuit Catholic priest, father, Saji George from India, and he performs a Hindu dance called Bharatan. He claims that he gives momentum to God's word in tangible form. So now, if we can dance while we sing up spirituality, then it all becomes tangible and touchable and, and everybody gets so excited in the spiritual world that it will enhance your spirituality. And so the nuns go, Ooh, and, Ooh, and we come into tune with that. And we have transformed what used to be in the old days to something new. Now let's go to the Shalom homepage. Did you know that some of these institutes are the only places where you can be trained to be a spiritual director? You can't go to your own 
because that's not good enough. We need specialist Jesuit trained old people to train you how to be a good formation leader. So let's see what they teach at Charlemagne Institute, where most of the spiritual directors are being trained. Consists of spiritual guide training, retreat leader training, spiritual deepening programs, group spiritual direction, sacred listening, contemplative leadership, flowing together. Can you see all this new and I nearly said something I shouldn't say. Anyway, here is this pleasant gentleman who is the founder of this organization, dressed in appropriate black. Some thoughts from the Charlotte founder. I'm not going to read this. The heart is a dangerous place to that We depend upon something, someone beyond our control and mental grasp. Our constricted ego self is rationalized. La, 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 la. Hello, please preach Jesus. Salem's work also involves the chant, the body prayer practice. Fascinating. This is Quakerism. Traditional Reiki master will align and tune in the energy centers of the students. After this process is completed, the universal life force becomes amplified when drawn through the hands. This is a cult. Our bodies have a vocabulary, simple breath prayer, simple body prayer, body blessing. Note these buzzwords. You will hear them. They're coming to us in a powerful way. This is how body prayer works. May your body be blessed. May you realize that your body is faithful and beautiful friend of your soul. And may you be peaceful and joyful and of sacred thresholds. Many May you realize holiness is mindful, gazing, feeling, hearing, touching. There you sit and you go through all of these things. Here's the website of Unknowing. It's devoted to Christian mysticism, interfaith, spirituality, Celtic wisdom, emergency. product. Carl McCullman teaches contemplative prayer, propagates mysticism and religion. This is where it comes from. Abandonment of Protestant principles. Let's get to something else. And let's get into sacred dance. Are we getting that more and more in our world? Turkey, the sacred dance of the Middle East Sufis. What does it do? Opens up the channel for this activity. Now here you have a Muslim variety. Notice the dress. The white rose, the beautiful movement, and all of these things. The real reason why some evangelicals dislike contemplative prayer, says this webpage. Here's an interesting article from the Courier Journal. David Harris, a former Baptist minister, next month will be ordained a Catholic priest. Why? Because contemplative prayer changes your mind. Ex-married, ex-Baptist minister to become Catholic priest, married former Baptist to be a priest. Catholicism six years ago by the rejection of the Baptist faith that nourished him from childhood, etc. He practices these things and emerge. Shalom Center propagates sacred dancing, multi-religious interactions, dances of universal peace, and you have all these reverend doctors, 
bring universal peace into the world. And we could become the tent of Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah. What does that mean? All religions jump into the same pot. And we have religious dialogue, and we have co- coalitions for social action, and we have a social gospel, and we've ripped the heart out of everything that's in the Bible. Sacred mission, our sacred guild, sacred dance guild promotes sacred dances, prayer, means of connecting to the divine integration of mind, body, spirit. I mean, fantastic. And who will be the mega dancer on the world? The Pope. Here is his team of dancers. Imagine this. Rome's Olympic Stadium. A group of 1,200 young women performed synchronized dance during the Vatican-sponsored sports jubilee. An estimated 100,000 people were in the stadium to greet the Pope. And so we have St. Alphonsus Catholic Church, Rock Church. We have the sacred dancing, dancing on the altar, dancing in Luxembourg. The churches are full of it, the dancing girls of Archbishop Niederhauer. And this is the dance that took place when Pope Benedict had the mass in uh, the United States in the Yankee Stadium. Spiritual dancing. Where does all this stuff come from? The Methodist Center for Spiritual Formation. And now I want you to wake up. Now let's go to a Protestant webpage and see how far the rot has gone. Is that fair enough? This, this is the page. Spiritual formation, formation gatherings are the day or weekend retreat designed to meet the interests and needs of those seeking a deeper walk in their spiritual journey. What are they going to train us for? Please note the programs are for what years? 2009. That's now. Prayer labyrinth. Encountering the Holy Spirit on the journey within. Learn about the history of the labyrinth and join fellow sojourners on the labyrinth prayer John Wesley wouldn't turn over in his grave he'd spin if he could Methodist monastic spirituality monasticism and spirituality have always been two sides of the same coin in the last several decades many monastic communities have tried a formal religion and sought a closer communion with God. We're becoming monks and nuns. Thais worship. Thais in many things of a small village in southwest France, the name of its residential ecumenical monastic community. You go there and you sing the Thai chants. Methodist. An introduction to iconography. We need icons in the church. We need little statues. We've lost our identity. Explore the ancient tradition of icons through the eyes of iconographer and artists as well as understanding and experience how icons can be aids to contemplation and prayer. What is the second? It forbids this. Now, is this a Roman Catholic or is this not? Is it Jesuit controlled or is it not? 
journaling through active imagination. Have you ever thought that you would like to journal but always end up starting in a blank Now let's get this active wellness and health. It's also part of it. The New Ages are better at it than we are. Let's look at the Presbyterian webpage. What is spiritual formation? Formation is the activity of the Holy Spirit which molds our lives into the likeness of Jesus Christ. This is like deep intimacy with God and genuine compassion for all creation. Sounds good? The Spirit works not only in the lives of individuals but also in the church, shaping it into the body of Christ. We cooperate with this work of the Spirit through certain practices that make us more open and responsive to the Spirit's touch. Ooh. Sabbath keeping, works of compassion and justice, discernment, worship, hospitality, spiritual friendships, contemplative silence. Presbyterian Calvin will freak. Walking the sacred path. Join so-and-so with a wonderful sacred center. And we'll go to the cathedral. Through a series of workshops, training of your choosing, we'll explore historical archetypes. We'll go to those holy people of the past who were all Roman Catholic saints. The labyrinth as a tool. Labyrinth, engage in ritual meditation, lecture, art, music, Sacred circle. What does all this nonsense mean? Let's go to sacred circle. Here is the labyrinth. You walk in the labyrinth. And you find your spirituality by not knowing where you're going. And you have your little prayer beads. Who uses prayer beads like this, by the way? The Roman Catholic Church. The Sacred Circle Company, that's what the Presbyterians want to take. It is an exciting, innovative partnership offering material guidance and information for nurturing spiritual wholeness. We specialize in resources for care for the souls, labyrinth, small group studies, retreats, meditation and prayer, as well as mentoring for individual pilgrimages. Are these people... Crazy? The 12 heavenly practices of a new church. Stillness, detachment, humility, silence, discernment, healing, solitude, devotion, holiness, simplicity, delight, heavenliness. Is there anything about Christ here? God is doing a new thing now. God is creating a new church for the new age now. And we have to be part of it. We need spirituality in practice, as they quote the Presbyterian Office of Spiritual Formation. Good definition, many resources offered. Go and study what these people are saying. Formation. Revelation 7.3. Saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their forests. Isaiah 8.16. Bind up the testimony, seal up the law. Amongst my disciples, I quote to you from a book called Maranatha. Just as the sealed in their forest, 
It is not any seal or mark that can be seen by the settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so they cannot be moved. Just as soon as God's people are sealed and prepared for the shaking, it will come. Indeed, it has begun already the judgments of God on the land, that we may know what is coming. The days are fast approaching when there will be a great perplexity and confusion. Satan clothed in angel robes will deceive, if possible, the very elect. There will be God's many and Lord's me every wind of doctrine will be blowing I want to suggest that spiritual formation is the king of God the settling into the truth so that you cannot be moved and we need to study the Bible as we have never studied it before and we need to cling to what is truth and righteousness and we need to cling to the testimonies given by God so that we don't fall into these traps. And these traps are being put over the world. I don't need some hocus-pocus spiritual mumbo-jumbo formation. I need a walk with Jesus Christ, and that is all I need. Alice A. Bailey foretold of what she termed the regeneration of the churches, the rationale was this, the Christian church in its many branches can serve as a St. John the Baptist, as a voice crying in the world through which illumination may be accomplished. I don't need that kind of illumination. I'm crucified with Christ, says Galatians. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The Jesuit counter-reformation is almost complete. A few, very few loose ends that it has to wrap up. Be careful that we are not wrapped up in amongst those loose ends. Psalm 64 verse 8, Yes, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are the work of your hand. You belong to God. You don't belong to anyone on this earth. You don't belong to your husband. You don't belong to your wife. You belong to God. You are accountable to God for what you believe and what you practice. And nobody, nobody has the right to merge someone else's character into his. That is control. control. Control freaks do that. They use neuro-linguistic programming, whatever technique they use. It's not from God. Jeremiah says in 18 verse 6, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, said the Lord. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so you are in mine, in mine hand, O house of Israel. Our spiritual formation is a transformation that has to take place under the hand of the only one you can trust yourself to. And don't let anyone rob you of your ceiling.
hopefully you got that. <laughs> Anyways. <clears throat> yeah, it was Walter Beast. And yeah, Seventh-day Adventist. Yeah, I don't agree with a lot of the Seventh-day Adventist teachings, but that was good. <clears throat> Happy Reformation Day to all those who might have listened or might, will, or might listen. Uh, once again, October 31st is that day, Reformation Day. All righty. God bless. Take care. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.